0: all about investing in real estate in Spokane, Washington, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Spokane. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes. Not all of them specific to Spokane. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Nice. All right. Well, on that note, I'm James Orr. Uh, Welcome. Tonight is Real Estate Investing Strategies. I'm going to get started on time. And we got some people straggling in late, but since I'm recording. So Real Estate Investing Strategies. So um, I taught this class last time about a year ago. I think it was last February or something like that. And it was via webinar. Um, And I made some modifications since. But at the beginning of the last webinar, I told everybody that I was going to do a qualitative approach to real estate investing strategies where I talk about you know, how strategies work, what they are, some basic questions about you know how you find deals, how you do stuff like that. But I could have just as easily done a quantitative approach where I did numbers for fix and flip or for buy and hold or for Nomad or house hacking or whatever you're doing. And so this is the very earliest preview that I am going to do a quantitative version where I'm gonna go through numbers. So tonight, if you think about it, tonight is more like an overview of what all the different real estate investing strategies are and an overview on like how they work and everything. And then over the next, whatever it is, eight weeks or so, we're going to pick one strategy and we're going to go deep into that strategy, like a two-hour class just on that strategy. And I will take time to go over quantitative stuff. So I will show you, hey, listen, if you're fixing and flipping and you're doing that for the next X number of years, then you will finally have enough money to achieve financial independence and what those numbers look like doing it that way. For tonight though, it's not numbers, but eventually you'll be able to see a list of all the different strategies and some variations on those for each one of those two hour separate classes. And you'll be able to see how long it takes you to achieve financial independence for each one. And then you can compare and say, oh, if I do house hacking, it's this number. If I do Nomad, it's this number. If I do Buy and Hold, it's this number. If I do Fix and Flip, it's this number. And then maybe I add some variations in there and like, what if I do a little bit better in fix and flip? Or what if I get a little bit more in rent or things of that nature? So the thinking is tonight is more qualitative. And then the next eight classes or whatever it is, I put them on the schedule. If you guys can look at the uh, group there, you'll be able to see them. And that's going to be more quantitative. At least that's the plan right now. Subject to change. Okay. So here's the list. Um... So I'm just going to go down and I'm going to walk you through all the different strategies. And then there's a bunch of slides that go into more detail, but I'll give you an overview of what to expect tonight. So the first one on the list is all the creative financing stuff. So creative financing, in my mind, is primarily going out, doing marketing, finding some type of seller, usually not in the multiple listing service, and then offering them some type of creative financing solution like owner financing or Uh, wrap financing or loan assumption or buying the property on a lease option or buying a property subject to the existing financing, something like that. And we're going to go into detail as to what those are, but that's like the creative financing family. And you're not likely to find those inside the MLS. You're likely to find those when you do marketing and you find those deals off market. So we'll go into what all those are in a little bit. Uh, The next one on here is buy and hold. And in my mind, buy and hold is buying a property, holding onto it for a long period of time, Um, And usually getting income from it, doesn't have to, but usually I associate that with getting rent on the property. And that would include the subset of short-term rentals for me. So it's not just buying and holding and leasing to a year-long lease type tenant. It could be buying a property and then converting it to a vacation rental or short-term rental in order to be able to do this. Uh, Next one on the list is quick turn flipping. So flipping in my mind is buying a property, usually adding some value in some way, although it doesn't have to be. Sometimes you just solve a problem and the property is ready to go to put it back on the market, and you can make enough money, enough spread in there in order to sell the property right away without having to do a lot of work to it. But in the majority of cases, you're buying a property, you're adding some type of value. The, most traditionally, people think of adding value as uh, doing paint, carpets, replacing a kitchen, fixing a roof, you know, things that kind of upgrade the property, although it doesn't have to be that. It can be solving a problem with the property, subdividing it, or breaking it into pieces, or combining it with something else or things of that nature. So there's lots of variations on how that works. But in my mind, it is a quick process of getting in, doing something to add value to a property traditionally, and then getting out of the property. But it also includes some subsets in here. So, um, and, and the last time I taught this class, I was missing some key ones in here. And actually the ground lease I didn't have on there because it seems like a more unusual strategy, although in some markets they do a lot of ground leasing. Um, but anyway, I, I digress. So there was something I was missing and some of them that that are missing are right here. So I added to my list since last time uh, live-in flips because some people actually asked me, so what about when you go buy a property that needs fix up, you move in and you're doing the fix up over the next six months or a year or two years, whatever it takes in order to be able to then um, convert the property to a rental or maybe you just fix it up and eventually resell it and buy another property. So uh, live-in flips is also kind of a subset of quick turn or flipping. There's also a... Um, an additional variation called uh, the two-year slow flips. The best way I can describe this one is, imagine for a minute you're a contractor or you're a, a custom home builder of some nature, and you're able to buy, build properties and get a discount. And maybe you're able to build a property and and be all in for you know 90 cents on the dollar. Well, you could go build a property for yourself, move into the property, live there. Traditionally, some people try to do this every two years, although I will tell you up front, that that is not the optimal strategy. But some people will go, they'll move into a property uh, that they built themselves. They'll live there for two years for the tax break. They're really trying to avoid having to pay capital gains by doing the living in a property two out of the last five years. Then they will go and sell the property. They'll take all the profit they made from the discount they got when building it, plus any appreciation and debt pay down that they have. And that's sort of like a two-year slow flip is what I like to refer that as. Um, And so there's some reasons to do that, but I will tell you, I've done math on this, I've done some modeling, and my my math suggests that it is suboptimal to let taxes dictate waiting two years. That if you really can get a 10% discount on a property, you actually should sell, pay the capital gains tax, and actually move on to the next property, even if it's less than two years. Um, that's what the math suggests you should do. Um, but we can go talk about that when we do the deep dive on those. And then finally, I have partnership flips in here as well. Partnership flips, if you guys haven't heard of this concept, it's pretty interesting instead of having to go out and find a deeply discounted property that you're going to buy at a big enough discount to do all your holding costs and to do all the repairs and everything, and then to go resell the property with a partnership flip, instead you go find a seller who doesn't want to do the work themselves, but they're willing to split the profit with you if you come in and you actually do all the work on the property and then you sell it together. So you don't even have to take ownership of the property. In that case, you just partner. You're almost like a general contractor that says, look, I'll go you know, hire my guys, I'll go do all the work. I will go um, you know, put up the money for the repairs and all this stuff, and then we will then share in the profit that we're gonna make on the deal over a set price that we we agreed to at the beginning. And so it's an interesting kind of sub, sub fix and flip model to do it that way. Does that make sense? All right, so that's all the uh, quick turn flipping ones. So Nomad, um, is there anyone here? Oh, I'll just do it for the recording anyway. So Nomad is the process of buying a property, Usually as an an owner occupant, usually with like a low down loan, like a 3.5% down or a 5% down loan. Sometimes you could do 0% down if you're doing VA or USDA and you buy a property, you move into the property. You have to do it as an owner occupant in order to get those financing terms, but you move into the property and according to the terms of the loan that you do, you are required to move into the property and live there for a year. So the lender requires you live in the property for a year Once the year is up, you buy another property, you convert the last one to a rental property, and you acquire a new one that you move into. And so you can acquire, if you think about this, if you had 20% to put down on a property, by doing the Nomad strategy, you could actually buy four rentals for the same 20% down payment. So you do 5% down for the first one, 5% down for the second one, 5% down for the third one, 5% down for the fourth one. And now instead of having, you know, whatever the property values are, you know, if it's a $400,000 property, now instead of having one $400,000 rental that you put 20% down on. Now you have $1.6 million, four times 400 uh, uh, worth of real estate that you have an asset base that's growing. You have four rentals that are all growing and going to eventually be paid off and you'll have flow on. So that's what the nomad strategy is. And you could do this, you can repeat this for as many rentals as you want. There's no loan limit for owner occupant rentals. So you hear about sometimes, you know, not being able to get more than 10 loans. If you're going to be an investor before you have to go to some type of portfolio loan or some type of more Unusual loan product. Well, with the Nomad strategy, since you're buying properties as an owner occupant, there is no limit on the number of owner occupant loans you can do. You can buy your 11th property as the owner occupant, live there, and actually get a 5% down loan. So interesting that way. Then there's a whole bunch of sub versions of Nomad. There's uh, Nomad by proxy. Nomad by proxy is when you have someone else go and Nomad for you. Um, And actually, Dwayne kind of is one of the people that was. uh, i um, suggesting we teach a class on this, but um, it, it, the idea is, let's say your grandparents want to move into the area because they want to be near your grandkids. Well, if you can convince your grandparents, your parents, you know, the kids' grandparents to actually nomad on your behalf, maybe you even provide the down payment. They actually are the ones moving every year and you're buying a new house. So it doesn't have to be you that moves into the properties. It could be a family member, it could be your kids. You could decide, hey, uh, while you're in college for the next four years, you are going to move four times. And I'm going to help you with down payments and I'm going to be a co-signer on the loan, but you're going to be the one living in the property. And so you can actually acquire four properties over four years without you being the one that moves using the Nomad by proxy strategy. Um, Then you can also do Nomad where you house hack. So you move into a property and maybe you rent out a room or maybe you buy a duplex for the first one or a triplex or a fourplex. And you have roommates or you have um, like housemates in the units next to you while you do this. And so nomad with house hacking is combining the nomad strategy where you're serially buying houses, sequentially buying them one a year with another strategy of like house hacking. Uh, Nomad to short-term rental. This is a new one that a lot of people may not have seen before, but one of the challenges we're seeing at least in our market here in Northern Colorado and probably across the country is this. Prices have gone up so much and rents have gone up, but not quite as much as prices and interest rates have risen such that it's getting harder and harder to cash flow on properties, especially when you're only putting 5% down. And so one of the solutions to that is to actually nomad into a property, live there for a year, and maybe even during the year, you actually rented out you know, vacation rental by owner or um, Airbnb or something like that, excuse me, where you were buying the property and you're doing short-term rental in order to get some income on it. But then maybe after you move out, instead of converting it to a, a lease with a one-year tenant, you can get a lot more income and net a lot more income if you convert it to short-term rentals. The challenge is you probably need to pick slightly different properties when you're nomading originally. You might not want to do, you know, property on the outskirt of town where we've been buying a lot of nomad properties lately. This might be one where you're willing to pay a small premium to have it more in town in a more walkable part of the area. And you pay a premium for that. So you want to make sure that you got your strategies right. But you could then convert those to more of a short-term rental after you nomad in the property. And that could help solve some of your cash flow problems until rents increase enough where it's no longer an issue. And then you could reduce your workload by not having to manage those short-term rentals and convert them to long-term rentals. So does that make uh, sense? So there probably are regulations and I don't know what they are. So we'd wanna go check in with the city and find out if the one that you're considering is able to be converted to a short-term rental. And in some cities, they're requiring licensing to do that. In some cities, they're requiring you, you know, pay the lodging tax or whatever it is. So you would need to do the equivalent research in whatever market you're in I don't know the numbers for Four Collins. That's not something clients of mine have done. Uh, but I think the the strategy is to find ones where you can do it. And it might be a property that is already licensed that maybe the license passes with the property. And so you'd wanna go select properties where that is a viable solution and do whatever the regulations say. We're not encouraging you to break the law. We're not encouraging you to kind of go around and try to figure out ways to circumvent things. We're telling you comply and and find ones that does that where it does work. And if it means it doesn't work in, that particular area, then we're not doing it. So that's what I would say about okay. that. And and so one of the reasons why I'm I'm reluctant to give very specific answers in some of these things is these things change over time. And you know a year from now it could be very different. They could say nope, we're not doing any more. Or they could be like yeah, it's a free for all. Anyone can do it. Any property, any part of town. You you just don't ever know. Um, so yeah, the the correct answer is before you buy a property, you should do that due diligence to make sure. And if you're not willing to do it before you go under contract, you absolutely 100 percent should be doing it while you're under contract, while you're able to deal with that provision in the contract that gives you the right to do your due diligence and you are able to terminate based on finding out if it doesn't work in that case. Um, but it's better to do before you go under contract, especially if you're having to be aggressive and bid and, and waive things and things of that nature. So, yeah. Any other? Good. Yeah. Do you have any other? Okay. All right, cool. So. um that's the list on there. Oh, so that Nomad to short-term rental is another option for sub for Nomad. Um, lease option Nomad. Lease option Nomad is a variation on combining lease option exits with the Nomad strategy for acquisition. If anyone has ever read the book I published, it's called um, How to Acquire a Multi-Million-Dollar Real Estate Portfolio Starting with $3,000, or if you've seen the class with the same title, it's that strategy. It's buying a Nomad property. And then once your year is up, instead of actually converting it to just a long-term rental, you decide to do a lease option exit. You find a tenant buyer who wants to move into the property, who wants to buy it from you, and they need a year or two or three to do whatever they need to do in order to get qualified for the loan and purchase it. And so it combines the nomad strategy of how you acquire properties with then you getting cashed out of the deal, ideally without the help of you know real estate agent and real estate agent fees, for you to then sell the property to them a year or two or three down the road, you get a pop. You can then use that money to fund additional down payments for your additional nomads, plus probably more, so that you can eventually buy additional 20% down rentals and speed up the process. It takes a little while to do it, but over time, you're able to acquire more than one property in a year, which is a limitation traditionally of nomad, and you're able to do this strategy with uh, less money because you usually get a option fee from the tenant buyer when they come in, which in some cases can be enough to fund your down payment for the next purchase. So that's why you can do it with just one down payment. Um, and then other variations of nomad, there's, there's quite a few different ones. One of the, one of the things I'm known for is, uh, kind of doing nomads and nomad variations. And so there's a whole bunch of other ones, but those are the big kind of groups, another real estate investing. And uh, by the way, I, I run as you probably can tell, I run a really informal class. So if you have questions, feel free to ask your questions and, uh, we'll get the mic to you and you can ask us. So real estate investing strategies, house hacking, house hacking usually is getting income from a property that you're living in. One of the most common ways to think about this is someone who buys a duplex, a triplex, or a fourplex, where they're living in one of the units and they're renting out the other units. But it could just as easily be you buy a single-family home and you rent out three other bedrooms where you live in one bedroom. Or Maybe you live in the living room and you rent out the three bedrooms or something like that. So it's really getting extra income from a property that you're living in. That's the house hacking strategy. Uh, next strategies are Burr and burr. They're just adding an extra R. So Burr stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance. And the one that has an extra R is adding repeat to the end. So it then becomes buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And is sort of like a, a variation of fix and flip where you're not actually selling the property. You're finding a property usually that needs quite a bit of work. You're buying it at a big enough discount where you can go in there, acquire the property, do all the fix up to it put a tenant in there and then go and get long-term financing on the property where you pull out an ideal world, all of your money. So you have nothing in the deal. In most cases, in a practical sense, most of the time you can go and you can buy a property and leave minimal amount in and minimal. It's probably going to be in the neighborhood of 5% or so in most markets. Although you can find ones where you leave nothing in the deal and you can find ones where it's considerably more that you have to leave in the deal in order to do that. So that's what Burr is. Uh, wholesaling and wholetailing. I'll start with wholesaling. Wholesaling is usually the process of finding a uh, property, usually off-market. It's usually not in the MLS. It's usually off-market where you do advertising. You find a seller, oftentimes a motivated seller. You come to an agreement with the seller. You put the property under contract, and then you go and you take your contract, which now is personal property to you, and you try to sell your rights to that contract to another investor. And that other investor is going to close on the property and actually pay you a fee to become you in the deal and take over your rights in that contract, okay? If you think about it, wholesaling is very similar in a lot of ways to what a real estate broker does. So a real estate broker goes out, they have to find a seller who wants to sell a property. They come to an agreement with that seller over what price they wanna be able to sell that property for. And then that real estate agent, often with the help of the other real estate agents in the market through the cooperative agreement of the MLS, but a lot of times that real estate agent will go out and they'll try to find a buyer. And then when they sell the property, they get paid a fee. The difference is a real estate wholesaler is actually not representing either party in the transaction. They're acting as a as a principal and they're selling their personal rights to the contract to someone else to close on the deal. A real estate broker has obligations to the seller or obligations to the buyer, depending on how their contract is structured. And so they're representing one of the parties in the deal and they're acting as a middleman, right? They're getting paid a fee to do that. So one of the things I will bring up is if you wanna do wholesaling, and you're gonna go out and you're gonna go find a seller. And it's not just any seller, it's a seller that wants to sell a property at a big discount. And then you gotta go find a buyer. And it's not just any buyer, it's a, it's a buyer who wants to buy an investment property, sometimes at a, at a big discount, sometimes it's because it needs a lot of work and it can scare a lot of buyers away. But if you've gotta go do the work of finding these rare sellers and finding these somewhat rare buyers and then get paid a fee in the middle for doing that, why not just become a real estate agent and actually go find any seller and then have other real estate agents in the market come find their buyers for you, where you still get paid a fee. Sometimes it's as much as you'd get the wholesaler. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's a little bit less, Um, but then you don't have to do both sides. You can only do one side. In fact, if you want to just go find all the investors that want deals, you could just represent the buyers finding deals for them. And you don't have to go find the sellers or you can just find the sellers and do it. So I don't know, you're welcome to wholesale, but um, I've got some different thoughts on that. Uh, and the wholetailing is the same idea of wholesaling, except instead of it finding a real estate investor buyer on the other end, a lot of times you're finding a great deal and you're selling it retail to a traditional buyer who's probably gonna go live in the property. And so wholetailing is like wholesaling, except you're selling it to a retail buyer. Any questions on any of this? I'm going really fast because I know that I've got a lot of ground to cover. So if I'm confusing anybody, I know some people in this room could teach this class, but I know there's other people that I don't know. And so I don't know what your level of experience is. So if you've got questions, let me know. Okay. All right. Options and option auction. So you can go and acquire an option to buy a property. This is not lease optioning where you're leasing the property and you have the rights to buy it. This is just the option where it says, hey, look, I want to be able to buy your property for you for a specific price sometime before a specific date. And so you get the rights to be able to acquire property at a pre-agreed upon price for a specific period of time, often for some money. And so the example I like to use, which is an easy one to understand, although Most of them are not this clear cut, but imagine for a minute you think, or you know that Walmart is coming to town and you know of a property that the person who owns it does not know about Walmart and it's not imminent. Walmart may come to town in the next three to five years. Okay, So they're like, hey, look, my property is worth $200,000. You come to them and you say, look, I'll give you $500 for the rights to be able to buy your property for $300,000, $100,000 more than what it's worth today. Any time in the next five years, I give you $500 today and I'll be able to buy it for $300,000. And they think to themselves, it's only worth $200,000 today. This guy wants to give me money to be able to buy it for $300,000. Even if they bought it for $300,000, that's a deal. I would take that. And so they think to themselves, $500, that's free money to me. And they sign an option agreement. Well, three years later, Walmart comes into town and you're the holdout. The lot that they want, the corner that they want in town is the one that Walmart wants to build on. And Walmart's coming in and say, look, what's it gonna take? And you know that they'll buy it for 400,000. So now you exercise your option, you buy it from the guy for 300,000 because you had enough foresight to get it under contract with an option agreement. You gave them $500, and now Walmart is willing to pay you 400, so you buy it for 300, you sell it to Walmart for 400, and you made $100,000. What happens if Walmart didn't come to town? Well, you're out 500 bucks, okay? So that's the idea behind an option. Now, there's a variation to this. It's the option auction strategy. This is another cash flow strategy if you're uh, looking to make money uh, in the short term. So the idea is you go out, you do marketing, you find some type of seller who's somewhat motivated. You come to an agreement on terms for a price that you have an option to buy the property from them for. You get your option in place with the seller. Then you go out and you do a marketing blitz where you do, um, there's a book on this. I think it's by Bill Bill Efros, I think. It's, it's a seven-day sale. And the idea is, you go and you do a marketing blitz for a week or a weekend, and you, um, you basically have everyone come through an open house. And then on Sunday night, you, you ask people who is interested in bidding on this property, and you run an auction in order to sell that property to the highest bidder via, excuse me, round robin telephone that evening. So basically, you call up the first guy and says the bidding is going to start at 200000 And it's usually below market where you started at. Would you like to bid $200,000? they are like, yes, great. You call the next guy on the list. Would you like to bid two hundred five? Yes. Okay, great. You keep moving around until people drop out. And whatever the price it gets to, as long as it's above your your reserve amount, your minimum that you have, then you sell the property, you sell your option to them, and they close on the property, and they buy it, and you collect the difference between the numbers. So that's what option auction is. Come on and have a seat. So that's what option auction is. Uh, To be kind of comprehensive, I put in here real estate investment trust. It's sort of the odd one out, right? Because a real estate investment trust is not as much a real estate investing strategy as it is a very passive you're participating in someone else doing some type of large-scale real estate syndication. And so you come in, usually through a stockbroker, you pay some money in order to become one of the cash partners in a deal in order to acquire, usually like larger buildings or larger apartment complexes or things of that nature. And so that's what a real estate investing trust is. I put probate on here. And it's, that's, that too is also kind of a weird one because it's not as much a real estate investing strategy as a source of deals. And I wanted to sort of be comprehensive about it because it didn't really fit in with everything else. But you could go to uh, state uh, state attorneys or probate attorneys, and uh, a lot of times they are dealing with the estate, and they don't want to have a piece of real estate in the estate. They want liquidity. They want to have the money to distribute to the heirs instead of a piece of property, especially if it's a a large portion of the net worth, and they can't evenly divide it pretty clearly. So a lot of times they'll go and they'll want to sell a property, and you could come in as a real estate investor. And sometimes these properties, because a lot of times it's elderly people that haven't maintained their property appropriately. They need work or updating. And so a it can be an option for a fix and flipper or a burr person or someone who wants to you know, maybe even nomad into it or something like that, but it's more of a source of deals. So you can get the list of people that are in probate. Probates went up, someone dies in case you didn't know. So someone passed away, they go into probate and uh, their estate guest needs to get distributed. So that the process of distributing the assets is called probate. So you can go find those deals that way. And then they have to publish um, that in the paper, so it becomes a public list. So it's a source of uh, places you can market to. Uh, short sales and foreclosures, again, this is just a source of deals. I mean, short sales is when a, um, a seller needs to get the permission from the bank to pay less than what the balance on, on, the mor- on the mortgage that's due in order to facilitate a sale. So let's say you have a $400,000 property, someone owes $400,000. In order to be able to sell the property, the bank has to say, hey, I'm willing to accept slightly less than $400,000 in order to get this sold. Otherwise, it's going to go into foreclosure. We saw a lot of these during 2008, 2009, 2010 kind of era. Um, and, and since then, we haven't seen very many at all. But this may come back, right? It may come back at some point in the future. So really, uh, that's a strategy where you go and you, 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 they're usually listed inside the multiple listing service because the real estate agent is usually listing it for the seller and the seller has gotten permission or will get permission from the bank to accept less than what's owed in order to let a sale go through. And so that's a way to get properties that way. And then foreclosures is once the bank um, has to take ownership of the property back. So they will uh, foreclose on the property in order to get ownership from the seller who is not paying on their mortgage. So now the bank owns the property. In most cases, during the foreclosure process, there is a foreclosure sale, a lot of times at the courthouse and um, the, uh, the, the bank will have to bid to get their property back or other people can bid more than what they owe and try to buy the property that way. But if the other people don't bid it up, then the bank actually forecloses, they take ownership of the property and then they usually turn around and list it in the MLS as a foreclosure. It's a bank owned foreclosure inside the MLS and then uh, real estate investors or anyone can go in there and buy those properties uh, from the MLS, but they're bank owned. So I think I covered all those. So tax liens and tax deeds, so you could go, if, if you don't pay your property taxes, the county wants the money that you would otherwise have from property taxes in order to be able to do their good work, you know, the, do their roads and schools and all that other stuff. So what they often will do is they'll say, hey, if you're an investor, you can come in and you can pay the property taxes on behalf of Johnny Johnny Seller and, or Johnny Homeowner. Johnny Homeowner hasn't paid the property taxes, so you as the investor can come in, you pay the taxes on behalf of Johnny Homeowner to the city or the county, and then uh, Johnny homeowner needs to actually pay you the taxes back plus an interest rate. If they don't pay you that interest for a certain period of time, it varies depending on county and state, but if they don't pay you that amount of money for a period of time, then you can go and you can actually foreclose on the, uh, the, the, the taxes that you paid because they're leanable. And so that basically you can foreclose on the property and get ownership of the property for fronting the taxes for Johnny. Now, in most cases, Johnny has an escrow statement through the mortgage company, and the mortgage company is going to probably pay those taxes. Because if you go foreclose on it, it wipes out the mortgage in a lot of cases. And so the mortgage company wants to protect its security interest in the property, and they're going to make it whole and pay the, the fees on top of that. And they're just going to go ahead and add it to what Johnny owes in some form or another. Um, So it's hard to get ownership of the property, although it does happen. You know, especially with free and clear properties. And about one third of all the properties in the United States are free and clear; they do not have a mortgage at all. Um, But if that person doesn't pay their property taxes, um, and the the county is trying to notify them, so it's not like a secret that these things are happening. But if you go and you pay that, then uh, you know you have a chance of getting your money back plus interest, or ownership of the property if you foreclose on that property. Does that make sense? And tax deeds in some in some counties or states. There are properties where it's already past the period of time where you can foreclose. You can literally go into the tax office and say, what tax liens or tax deeds or or stuff that you have on hand, and you can go and say, okay, I want one that is already past the period of time and I can initiate foreclosure proceedings right away. And so there's a way to do that where you kind of do it. And these have become much more popular. There was a time when this was sort of like a hidden secret for people, but uh, at this point it's, it's pretty well publicized and pretty well known. Any questions on this? You guys know about all these? Is this like me? Okay. This is like all new information for everybody. Okay. And then finally on my list, partnership slash syndication, which I sort of think of in, in some of the same ways. So when you have a partnership, I like to break down when you do real estate partnerships into three roles. There's like the deal maker slash syndicator. That's like one role. And that's the person who goes out there, they find the deal. Then they're the ones going out and finding the money. They're the ones going out and finding the financing, and they're going to oversee the work and they're going to oversee the project and do it. That's the deal maker syndicator role. Then there's the money partner role. Those are the people that they invest in the deal. They bring the money to the table, but a lot of times they're not doing the work. And then there's the loan partner, someone who is able to go qualify for a loan and um, and, and and pledge their, you know, their good credit and their assets for uh, making sure the loan gets paid. And So those are the three roles. So um, that's kind of what I'll have to say about partnership syndications for now. Any questions on these before I move on to more detail? Yeah, yeah. You want to do the mic? Thanks, Rob. So in today's is it, is it on? Yeah, So in today's crazy market, yes, which one of these strategies is usable right now? Yep. And then when the market turns, mm-hmm. which one of these strategies would be good to implement? Really, really good question. Um and it depends. So it's 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 more nuanced than that. Part of it depends on what you want to do. Like For me, I'm not looking to generate income. So I can eliminate a whole bunch of the income generating ones right away. I don't wanna do the labor of fix and flips. I don't wanna go out there and do all that work. I definitely don't wanna go do wholesaling, right? So even though those strategies could be good strategies now, which right right now, they're probably not because the market's so hot, but they could be good strategies, especially as the market transitions. um, I'm not willing to do those. So part of it is personal preference and what you're looking to get out of it and what you're looking to do. So that's one of their kind of selection criteria like as far as like market dynamics go right now, when you have a fast appreciating market, maybe you have a market where you don't know if it's going to continue to appreciate very rapidly because there's some signs that there's high inflation on the horizon, although the Fed just raised interest rates today, 0.5%. And so maybe that'll curb some inflation and suppress some, uh, some appreciation that we're seeing, but it's really hard to tell. So when you don't know what a market's gonna do, I mean, uh, like strategies like buying an option on a property seem like a pretty good thing because you don't have the downside risk. You have very minimal risk. You paid, you know, whatever it is, $500, $5,000 for the rights to be able to buy a property, but you don't know if that's going to pay off or not. And if the market really, really goes down, then you're sort of protected. You have a, a known downside for that. And so you have some upside there. So you could do things like regular, straight up options on properties. You could do things like lease options where you agree to lease a property for a period of time, a year, two years, three years, and you have an option to buy it for a set price. And if the market goes down you just say, I'm choosing not to buy it because I don't know what's going to happen in the market. So that could be a strategy for doing that. If you really think the market's going to go up and you have a very long term horizon, I think buy and hold and nomad and all those long term wealth building strategies, those are still great. Um, and even with interest rates where they are, what's great about interest rates, and we've been in such a low interest rate environment for so long that my thoughts are you, you lock in an interest rate. And even though you think to yourself, you know, 5%, that's probably where you're going to get, maybe five and a half or so on a investor loan right now, that seems really high to what it was six months ago or a year ago or whatever it is. But realize what's interesting about interest rates is if interest rates go down in the next year, two, three or four, or five, you can always ratchet them down. But as long as you get a 30-year fixed rate loan, you can't go up, right? Unless you're getting an adjustable rate mortgage, which I don't know. I mean, you don't really want to be chasing that thing and have that extra risk exposure out there. Although some people would probably choose to do that if they have you know deep pockets and they could do that. So It's a much more nuanced question um, that I I don't know if I wanna give you like a very specific answer. These are the three that you do now, especially since this could be recorded and listened to five years from now, but you need to sort of think about, and that's what I'll probably do in the subsequent classes. I'll say, you know, these are good strategies in these types of markets so that you can then go look back and say, oh, I'm in this market. This is what I should be doing or this is what I shouldn't be doing or I have very low risk tolerance. I wanna do these strategies or, I need cash, so it doesn't matter. I'm going to be doing flips or, or, you know, option auction or whatever else you're going to do for money today, uh, wholesaling, you know, things like that. So I don't know, is that sort of, did I avoid your question tactfully enough where you felt like you got something, but like I didn't actually answer it? Did, did I do a good job with that? That's good. <laughs> he's market. Looking at, looking at other investors, uh, they say, oh, in this kind of market, you want it's like, Conserving, or I don't think this is a conserving cash time. I think in periods of high inflation, uh, anyone who's holding cash is losing ground. Yeah, I think buying assets that, that go up in value, I think those are things. I think the tricky part is a lot of times we, we can't, fi- at least in our current market, in northern Colorado, at our current interest rates, current prices, current rents, it's hard to make properties cash flow. And so I think that's the challenge for folks. If you're trying to acquire for cash flow, it's tricky right now. It's tricky to do. And so what do you do? Do you put more down? Do you you just kind of consider the negative cash flow as part of your down payment? What's the strategy there? And that's a personal preference thing. I don't think you could tell somebody, you always do this. Um, So that's how I would kind of answer that question.
1: Yes, sufficiently vague. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You know, James, what I've noticed is a trend that's happening right now is that a lot of a lot of us, when we were doing lease options, owner-carry, owner-financing, that kind of stuff. Right now? We were. We just can't do them right now because the seller really has options, which is sell.
0: Oh, right right out. now, yeah. the market's so hot that a yeah. seller can basically put it on the market get get above thing. But we're entering a yeah. golden age because the golden age that's coming is all of these really low interest rates, all the options like lease option, wrap uh, financing, subject to, that's coming. It just We need a softening of the market where... Now this becomes an option for sellers. Our solutions become options. Is that where you're going with that?
1: Yeah. So what, I, what I've seen is a pivot where a lot of people have moved over to master leases in particular, where they're going in on a master lease and, they're, and attaching it to it. They, a, they're creating a performance lease so they're at no mm-hmm. risk at all, essentially being a property manager and, yep. and keeping 10%. That, but they're also attaching a right of first refusal and or an option to purchase yep. it in the thing. So I'm seeing a lot of that. And those are exactly the same people who were doing a lot of lease options before, but it's just kind of interesting. They're trying to position themselves for that golden age, which is coming in two years' time, right?
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's two years, but yes, I think they were coming into a period where, you know, for the last, whatever it's been, three years, four years, we've seen these extremely low interest rates. And so at some point in the future, the market shifts and sellers start to struggle with being able to sell their properties. Maybe there's a glut of properties that are for sale and not enough buyers. And now investors come in and they add liquidity to the market historically. And so now you could come in and you can find sellers that are in situations where a offer to buy a property subject to or a wrap financing or in a lease with an option, those become attractive to certain sellers at certain periods of time. And so now you can come in and you can take advantage of the really low interest rates we saw historically last few years, a few years in the future. But that's not here yet, right? And so we're sort of like waiting for a period where the market has shifted enough and you could take advantage of different strategies at different times. So I don't know that's where I am with that. Hopefully that's helpful. Yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but well, like, what am I, what would I recommend for clients? I would recommend they look at whatever strategy makes sense for their particular situation. And I think for a lot of folks, Nomad still is the best strategy. You know, it takes very little down payment. It takes relatively small amount of time. It's a really good way to dollar cost average or dollar value average into the market one per year over time until something shifts. And so, uh, for the people that are on limited down payments, it's a great way to get in and acquire properties. Uh, for someone who has a lot of assets and they're sort of waiting for the best time to buy with those assets, then buying a property a year with a very small investment in order to acquire that doesn't seem like a bad thing to do with a tiny bit of your asset pool that you're going to deploy. So I like Nomad for that reason. Um, if you're if you're trying to like, hey, I've got a million dollars or $2 million or $5 million and I need to place it because I don't like the risk of the stock market right now or whatever else I've got and I got to put it into real estate, it's a tricky time because it's hard to produce cash flow unless you put a lot more down. You're buying properties all cash or you're putting you know, 25, 30, 35% down, at least in our market and other markets may be different, right? So it depends on the client and what they're doing. I and mean, this is, I mean, you're a real estate broker, you sort of know this. The, the thinking is you have to go to the client and find out what they're trying to accomplish and say, these are the options that you can do based on what you're trying to accomplish. This one's not amazing right now, but but where else can you do better than? And you tell them what the numbers are for that deal at that time in the market right then, right? So we run numbers with Nomad right now. Cash flow is really negative, right? When you kind of do it in our marketplace, but you look at the overall return. Can you beat this? And where can you beat it? Well, yeah, long term. Not, 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 not even not even long term. You say. In the next year, this is what we expect this Nomad property to do. It's you know, negative X in cash flow. It's positive X in depreciation. It's you know, positive X in appreciation and positive X in, in a down payment. Overall, it's net whatever, positive or negative. In most cases, it's still going to be net positive, right? It's still going to be a positive return, even with really negative cash flow. So you look at that and you say, can you beat this return somewhere else? Otherwise, let's do one Nomad property. You got to wait a year anyway before you can do the next one. There's no pressure. We can just, if the market changes and we have to shift, not a big deal. You have a property. You could live in it. You could sell it. You could convert it to a rental. You could do short-term rental, whatever you want to do with it. Now you've got one asset. Then we decide, you know, we go out nine months into the future and you reevaluate the kind of playing field at that point. You say, okay, I've got this amount of down payment. I've got, this is what the market looks like. This is what interest rates are. This is what rents are. This is what prices are. What can we do? And so I think you then look and you make decisions. Unless somebody has a lot of money and they're trying to deploy it right away, that's the big risk of what do you do with all of it? Do you space it out? Do you make one big investment and try to acquire a whole bunch of properties? Are you trying to buy some big multifamily, which is hard to do in our marketplace and cap rates are kind of wacky right now? What do you get what? I think so. I, th- I think they're slowing down because it's hard to even get deals. You know, the, the last six months in our marketplace, probably longer than that, but the last six months in our marketplace, we've seen um, people bidding on properties where there were 20 offers. And it's hard to do 5% down for Nomad and make up 10% additional in price as a down payment. Now you're at 15% down, right? You know, I'm rounding, but it's, it's, that, it's, it's more than the 5% down. So it's hard to do that in this marketplace. If we see a sum slowing down where it's more reasonable, where you have, you know, one or two offers on a property or you're buying new construction where there's not a bidding war or something like that, that's a much more reasonable thing for a Nomad to do, come in and do it, even with the negative cash flow in a lot of cases. So there was a class we did. Um, it might've been one of the last classes I did before I kind of stopped doing classes. It was called uh, "Is Nomad Dead," and and that was a discussion about this because there there was a class where it was it was a discussion about you know when I first started teaching Nomad it was whatever it was two hundred fifty thousand dollar properties and now properties the same properties in the same neighborhood that my clients were buying for two hundred fifty were now like four hundred twenty or something like that so and the rents hadn't gone up that much they got up but not quite that much so like we ran the numbers of like then versus today and I showed them the difference of. What it was like buying Nomad in the, the golden age, which it really wasn't a golden age. It was just whatever the market was at the time. And then what it was then. And I said, okay, so here are the numbers back then. Yeah, they're not as good as they are today, but can you beat this somewhere else? If so, go do that, right? Like, I don't I don't have any preference, but if you can't beat that, this seems like a good thing to invest in. And and then you can go and make the decision. And I think that's a good way to look at it all the time. Every time you make a decision about Nomad, you're like, okay, this is what it looks like if I could buy today. Should I do that or can I do something else? You know, can I go buy Dogecoin or can I go buy GameStop or go buy Twitter or, that you know, Activision Blizzard, you know, with their acquisition or whatever they're doing. You know, some of this, like, opportunity where you think, okay, well, I could do better than Nomad. Well, then do that. Okay. Which I maybe just put it on. I don't even think you need, you can decide that, right? That's your choice. But I don't think that's something I would recommend. And there is a number at which someone's like, I can't swallow X dollars negative month. Good discussion. All right. If we go over, it's all you, though. Okay, here we go. Because that was slide one of like 100. <laughs> all right, here we go. So um, I wanted to start this early, but I wanted to give you the like content of the class first before we got here. So get rich quick versus get rich slow. In general, if you're thinking about, okay, I want to get involved in investing in real estate, there is a need for you to put food on the table, to put gas in the car, to kind of pay for health insurance, whatever you're doing. So you need money to live on. So you need a way to generate income to live on while you build wealth in some form or another. If you have enough assets to acquire properties to generate that income, that's great. Most folks do not, though. They're not coming in with $5 million that they can deploy and buy a whole bunch of rentals and generate cash flow to live on if they're going to do that. So that means you need either one of two options. You either need to get a job that provides income to live on and maybe take some of the capital from that job and deploy it into real estate to then use the real estate to build wealth over time. Or you need to become a real estate entrepreneur and generate income through entrepreneurial activities in the real estate industry. This is essentially starting a real estate business, doing the strategies that are most likely to generate very short-term money, which is really just a job in the real estate field. So jobs in the real estate field look a lot like wholesaling, wholetailing, fix and flip, real estate brokerage, things like that, that generate like money that you could put food on the table in a very reasonable amount of time. Okay. So those are like the equivalent of getting a job. So if you're like, I need, I have a job and I could provide food to live on. Now I'm going to use some of that money to go buy Nomad or Burr or. Know a property to live in or buy and hold or whatever we're doing here or you get a real estate entrepreneurial job and you either use that money to live on and take some of it to reinvest just like you would from a job and then you get to kind of cherry pick your deals off the top and some of those kind of positions to do that does that make sense okay then with all this stuff being said invest for more passive cash flow and wealth building so Remember, the idea for a lot of folks is to achieve financial independence where their assets are providing enough income where they can support them in the lifestyle that they desire. And one of the ways to get there is cash flow from real estate or money invested in some type of asset stocks or bonds or something else that is throwing off, you know, some capital growth and also and or dividends or some type of uh, money coming out there. And a lot of times the asset base you're using some type of like 4% rule or 3% safe withdrawal rate or something like that in order to generate some money from that or end or the money from the real estate. And I'll throw it in there just to be complete and or passive income from like social security annuities um, or pension. So those are really the three sources of money for uh, achieving financial independence. Any questions on this? No way I'm getting through this two hours. Okay. So real estate investing strategy. So tonight I'm gonna to primarily talk about, th- uh, which is on the next slide, but the entry, the holding period and the exit period. Cause remember, real estate investing strategies. What is a strategy? It's a unique combination of how you get into the deal, how you hold the deal, and how you get out of the deal. That's sort of what the definition of a strategy is. And so in this case tonight, I'm going to talk about entry, different ways to finance acquiring properties, different ways that you can acquire properties through different channels, Uh holding period, whether it's an active or passive investment, the duration of your hold, if you're wholesaling, you're kind of just flipping your contract. If you're doing a flip and it's three to six months, or if you're doing like buy and hold forever, or nomading, or something like that. And then exiting, your exit financing, how you're getting out of the deal, how someone's gonna cash you out, um, or and then the channel for exiting, how you're gonna exit the property or, or get rid of the deal. And so those are the ones I'm primarily gonna talk about. For the sake of time and breath, we'll focus primarily on those. I'm not gonna talk about all these secondary, categ- secondary categorizations. I started putting together um, a database of all the strategies and then classifying them to a whole bunch of different criteria. And I'll just quickly run through this criteria, Um, but that's really what it is. And and a lot of the secondary criteria is what we're gonna cover when we do the individual um, classes. So I'll do a whole class on just buy and hold. I'll do a whole class on fix and flip. I'll do a whole class on Nomad. And then I'll cover a lot of these secondary ones. So how much money is really required for them? What's the credit score required? What's the investing style? Are you an investor where you're actually deploying money and expecting to get a return? Or are you an entrepreneur where you're actually doing work in order to generate money through work? Um, what's the stability? Is it passively stable or is it actively stable? You know, do you have a balloon on a property which is more of an active stability? If you don't, if you leave that thing alone, it could blow up on you. Where a passive stability is, if you don't do anything, it's sort of safe. It just kind of hums along and does its own thing. How scalable is it? Is this something that is going to be really hard for you to scale up and do bigger size? Or or is this something that is super easy to scale? What skills are required? Um, This reminds me, the skills one of the things I started doing when I was making this database of real estate investing strategies is I was going to make a list of, and you tell me if this is a good idea. This is why I want to do these live. Um, you tell me if this is a good idea. So I'm going to make a list of all the different things you need to do in all the different strategies. So analyze deals as an example, raise money as one example, um, You know, hire a property manager, manage a property manager, like all the different kind of like big category things you need to do for every single strategy. And then maybe what I do is I write software that gives you an assessment where you say on a scale of one to five, how good are you at doing all these different skills? And then certain skills apply to more than one strategy. I can sort of give you like a, a measure of which strategies are better for you based on the skills that you tell me you're good at. And I give you almost like an assessment for becoming a real estate investor. You tell me what you're good at, what you like doing. And I spit back out to you and say, well, these are the strategies based on what you tell me you're good at that you should Consider doing. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Oh, you have questions? That's a great idea. <laughs> you can't wait to talk. You no, know, I <laughs> think it's good. I okay. think you also, though, have to put in there what is their risk tolerance for those That's kids, probably another one. Right. That's probably another like asset assessment kind of question, right? Right. Yeah. Like how much money are you willing to risk? How, how well do you sleep at night knowing that things can go bad? What's your variance tolerance? Yeah. Things like that. Yep. Good point. So skills required, sales, analysis, property management, as some examples. What's your risk exposure rating? Like how risky is the strategy overall? Uh, what's your profit timing? Is it cash now, cash flow, wealth building? Uh, what kind sort of subgroups you would direct market to? Probate being an example, high equity being another example, low equity being another example. What are the best markets? I think this is to your question, we're up. Like where you're talking about, is this a soft market strategy? Is this a hot market strategy? Um, availability, like, are these like really rare deals? Are you very likely to not find any? Or is this like something you can go out and you can buy today? Um, and then can can you invest using retirement accounts? Kind of another one on there. So those are like my secondary criteria. We're not gonna talk a lot about those tonight. It's primarily gonna be this primary categorization. All right, so here's a visual. <laughs> There's no way I'm gonna get through this. Here's a visual of the uh, of the three different things. So the entry, the holding period, and the exit. Uh, the channel and financing for both the entry and the exit and then the holding period, whether it's active or passive and the duration for that, okay? That'd be great. All right, so buying, acquiring, entry into real estate market consists of two major considerations. The channel, the source of where you can find those deals and then how do you finance it? All right, financing when buying. So these are the lists of all the different ways to kind of finance or, or fund the, the acquisition of a particular strategy. So cash, it's a really obvious one. You wanna go buy a property, you put up all the cash, you go buy it. But there's also cash equivalents. There's things like, you know, I wanna go do fix and flip and I have a free and clear property. Instead of actually selling my free and clear property, I could go put a home equity line of credit on that property and then only pull the money out that I need in order to fund the acquisition of my fix and flip. And so that's sort of like a cash, a quasi cash equivalent, because it looks like cash, but you had to borrow money from yourself in order to be able to do that. Or if you have a million dollars invested in the stocks and you wanna use a margin account, you can go borrow up to 50% of your stock holdings and use that money in order to acquire the deal. Yeah, you're adding some leverage or risk into it, but that's the idea behind cash equivalent. Traditional owner-occupant loans, this is usually for stuff like um, house hacking or, excuse me, or Nomad or things like that. You can get 0% down VA or USDA loans in order to acquire properties as an owner-occupant. You can do 3.5% down loans to buy single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes. Um, as an owner-occupant, and you can do 5% down conventional financing in order to acquire these properties. And um, everything except for the 0% down VA has PMI. If you put less than 20% down, VA instead has a funding fee, sort of like a a prepaid fee you pay up front that takes care of the insurance risk that VA has for putting less than 20% down. So those are kind of the traditional owner-occupant type loans. You could do 20% down or more then you don't have PMI anymore, but most most investors are probably going to not opt to do that. Uh, traditional non-owner-occupant loans, that's usually uh, 20% down. A lot of times we will move to 25% down because the interest rate is so much better, moving to 25% down. um, And the cash flow improves a little bit because you're borrowing a little bit less. So a lot of times you'll do that. There there are 15, as of right now, there are 15% down non-owner-occupant loans you can get. They usually have PMI associated with them. And depending on what you're going for, you're trying to you know, make more of an appreciation play or you're making more of a cash flow play, you would choose those loans based on what you're trying to do there, in my opinion. Uh, creative financing—we talked a little bit about these. I'll go into detail a little later. But there's owner financing—that's when the the owner of the property acts like the bank. They allow you to make monthly payments to them uh, in order to buy the property. There's wrap financing, where the uh, owner of the property has a loan in place that they have with a bank or something like that, and they're saying, "Hey, look, I owe fifty thousand dollars on this property, but you want to buy it for me for four hundred thousand. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I will." offer you owner financing, but we have to make part of the payment go to the $50,000 underlying loan. So I'm going to wrap the $50,000 loan. You're going to make a payment to me for $1,500 a month and $300 of that. I'm going to pay to the underlying $50,000 mortgage on the property. So they've wrapped their own loan and they've offered you the ability to do that. So that's an example of wrap financing. Loan assumption is when you formally go to a bank and you formally assume the loan, You qualify in a lot of cases to assume the loan. They make sure that the loan gets switched to your name. You are now formally responsible. That loan shows up on your credit report. That's what loan assumption is. Then the next one is all the rent to own family. That's rent to own, lease option, lease purchase. Those are the rent to own type things. That's another way to acquire properties. Agreement for deed. This is like um, when you buy your car, you don't technically own your car until after you paid off the loan that you have from the bank. And so this is sort of like the car loan version of buying a house. You have a contract in place, you make monthly payments on that contract. And then when you made all the payments on that contract, then and only then the seller actually provides you a deed to the property that says you own it, okay? And then subject two. Subject two is where um, you actually transfer, the seller tra- deeds you the property, you now are the owner of the property because deed signifies ownership. So the seller deeds you the property, but you do not pay off the mortgage. You just start sending in payments to the bank on that underlying mortgage. You do not go to the lender and say, I would like to formally assume that loan. You basically just say, seller has deeded me the property. I'm making payments on the seller's old mortgage and you're not paying it off until it's paid off through its normal payment process or you sell it. Okay? So that's the difference between subject to and loan assumption. Uh, your partner a, on a deal. The partner can do any of these, right? They can go get cash. They can do traditional non interactive financing or maybe they do something else. Um, no financing required. So in some cases, like when you're wholesaling, you may not need financing. You're actually getting a property under contract and you're selling the rights to your contract. So you may not need financing on, on at all. Uh, hard money. A lot of times if you're buying a fix and flip property, you will go get a, a professional lender who's used to lending on properties that need fix up and a lot of times they'll do you know, 70% loan-to-value or 80% loan-to-value um, or 65% loan-to-value. A lot of times there'll be points. Uh, well, a point is a uh, percentage of the loan amount that you're taking that you pay as a fee upfront in order to get the loan. And then there's an interest rate, You know, usually eight, nine, 10, 12, 15, 20%, depending on what the interest rate of the time is and how good you are negotiating and their programs and things of that nature. So that's what hard money is. Um, there's also a version of hard money where if you're wholesaling a deal, and for some reason, you're unable or unwilling to assign your contract to someone else, you can go and say, I want transactional funding. It's also called dough for a day, where you go to the title company and there's a lender that provides you money in order to close on your deal. And then the very next day, you pay it off, or that later that afternoon, you pay it off um, and sell it to someone else. And so you need money, but it's only for like a really short period of time. Transactional funding is the name of that, or dough for a day. Private money? Private money is when um, you get like, Aunt Sally to loan you money. This is not a professional lender. It's not like you're going to go and market to find private lenders. If you're marketing to find private lenders, you're really looking for more hard money lenders. This is sort of like, you know, I go to my grandmother and I'm talking to her at Thanksgiving dinner and I say, so grandma, what are you doing? She's like doing good. You know, I've got, uh, I've got all my money invested in, um, I've got all my money invested in CDs and I'm earning 1%. You're like, yeah, I'm doing all this house flipping and I'm paying my, my uh, you know, hard money guy 10%. And she's like, 10%, that's crazy. I would love to even earn 5%. You say, well, grandma, I, will, I would be willing to pay you 5% if you loan me the money instead of you keeping it in CDs at 1%. And now you've got a private loan from grandma. Okay, that's how that works. Um, none required. I guess I have that on there twice. Note to self, remove that. Uh, utilize existing seller's ownership. This is like an example with the partnership flip, where you're going and you're partnering with the seller. And then you're coming in, you're going to provide all the repairs and do all the work and bring in the contractors and do that, and they're going to split the profit. Well, you don't really need financing for that. You're utilizing that the seller already owns the property. Maybe they've got a mortgage on it. They're just going to keep making their mortgage payment, but you don't have to come in with new financing in that case. Uh, and then private mortgage insurance, that's needed whenever you put less than 20% down on a property. There'll be private mortgage insurance involved with the exception of VA loans, which have that funding fee instead. Or grandma. Grandma doesn't have PMI. Any questions on financing? Channels when buying, you'll notice, I'll point it out if you don't, that there's an alligator behind this thing. And the alligator is for a reason. Finding deals is like looking for an alligator in a lot of ways. And I'll I'll explain what I mean. If you wanted to find an alligator, you could, in theory, go down into the sewers of New York City. And it's possible someone recently flushed an alligator down there. And you could stumble upon an alligator and find one. That is definitely a possibility, right? But if you really want to find alligators, you're probably going to Florida. And if you really, really want to find alligators, you're probably going to the Everglades, okay? The same thing is with deals. Could you find a subject to deal, a deal where the seller is willing to deed you the property and you just start making payments in their mortgage? Could you find a subject to deal in the MLS? Could you find an alligator in the sewers of New York City? Yes, it's possible. But if you really want to find a subject to deal, you probably wanna go find some type of for sale by owner. And probably if you really wanna do it, and that's like the Florida equivalent, you probably wanna actually go and find a for sale by owner that's not already marketing their property and doing the advertising themselves and looking for a little more of like a retail buyer. You probably wanna do some type of marketing to uncover some type of motivated seller of some sort and then find it where a subject to actually makes sense and it's a deal for them. Does that make sense? Do you understand why I use the alligator analogy? Okay. All right. So where can you find deals? You can find them inside the MLS, including, which some people don't believe, you find foreclosures inside the MLS because that's where banks list them after they've taken them back as foreclosures. You could also find short sales. Short sales are when the seller, uh, where the lender accepts less than what is owed in order to facilitate a sale, and those show up in the MLS. Then you have the whole for sale by owner group. There's actively market, marketed for sale by owners. This is when a for sale by owner puts a sign in their yard, they put up their ad on Craigslist, they put up their ad on Zillow, excuse me, and all those other places, and they are trying to actively sell their properties themselves. That's an actively marketed uh, for sale by owner. But then you also have hidden for sale by owners. These are, for, these are properties that are for sale by the owner, there's no agent involved, but you find these through marketing, sending out direct mail, putting up uh, ads on Google or whatever else you're doing and making a website, doing networking, telling people, Hey, listen, if you ever want to sell your house or you know someone who wants to sell, I'm a buyer, I'm an investor, I'm looking for properties that I can do work on and flip or whatever you're looking for. So through marketing and networking are the two ways to find non-actively marketed for sell-by-owners. You can also find deals from wholesalers. So wholesalers are out there usually doing these stuff, hidden for sale by owners stuff, marketing and networking in order to find deals. That's primarily where wholesalers find deals. And so your wholesalers can be the source of those deals. They become the middleman. They they almost become like a subset of the multiple listing service, except they're a one person MLS. They find their own deals, they put them under contract, and then they're trying to sell their, their contract to someone else. Uh, tax lien or tax lien sales. Um, auctions. So when a property is delinquent enough, the, the bank will start the foreclosure process, and then they will have an auction to bid on, basically what they owe on the property or what someone else is willing to bid in order to buy the property. And so there's foreclosure auctions. There's also IRS and other government auctions, like a DEA auction. So if a, a house gets seized for, I don't know, before, before it was, you know, uh, um, growing weed, I mean, you could have your house seized. I mean, until feder- till federally becomes legal, technically could be seized by the uh, the DEA for that. Um, or you don't pay your taxes and the IRS decides to seize your property and they offer it on auction. So you could do those types of auctions in order to find some properties. But, you know, I remember before I was telling you about like how accessible are deals, like what's the, What's the commonality? How available are they? It's a relatively small list, right? I mean, it's not like you've got MLS sized number of properties going through the IRS sales or, or DEA sales, right? Makes sense? Russian yachts. There's a whole bunch of Russian yachts for sale right now. Um, Stockbrokers, you can use those to acquire REITs, real estate investment trusts. Uh, syndicators, someone who's going to go and put together a syndication, they're going to buy a big apartment complex and they want to sell their you know, shares of their syndication to you. And then REO is real estate owned by banks. So in some cases, some banks, they may take back a portfolio of properties and instead of listing them to MLS, they may actually fish it out to their real estate investor clients first. And so any properties owned by the bank, real estate owned, could also be offered directly from the bank in that case. Any questions on this? Sweet, Making up time. All right, so that was the entry stuff. Now we're gonna talk about holding. So you have two groups, active or passive, and then duration. So Active or passive, you're actively adding value, um, like doing a fix and flip. And is the property vacant or is it owner-occupant? Are you doing like a fix and flip where it's a property that's vacant, you're doing work on it? Or is it like a live-in flip that you're doing over the next six months or year or two years or whatever you're doing? Those are kind of the two ways to think about it. Uh, Active income, rent. It may or may not choose to actively do things to add value during this period. It's up to you as to whether or not you want to. Or that's receiving rent. That's the active process of receiving rent on a property. Or owner financing where you actually sell the property and you're collecting money from the property that way. Um, and then passive, whether you're, you're not really directly involved, you've made an investment, like you've invested in a syndication or you invested in a real estate investment trust and you've just got your money out there, you're not really doing anything at all. Um, reminder to self, I need to add making hard money loans as sort of like a tangential real estate investing strategy because I think a lot of investors aspire to become hard money lenders. So I should probably make a note to add that. Uh, duration, uh, just contract. Are you wholesaling a deal? You're going to go under contract. You're going to sell your contract. The only period of time that you're actually kind of even quasi owning, you don't really own, but you have a equity, you have equitable title in the property when you own the, when you have the contract on it. So that's sort of like just the contract period for wholesaling, uh, forever. You're going to buy and you're going to hold. You're never selling that thing or everything in between. I'm going to hold it for six months. I'm going to hold it for a year. I'm going to hold it for three years. I'm going to do lease option exit whenever the tenant buyer cashes me out, whatever that is for you. Any questions on holding? Am I going too fast? I feel like I'm like flying. I feel like, uh, what's that guy in the Top Gun movies where he's doing his Jets thing? All right, pause for beverage. Not a lot of notes, huh? Nothing I told you is new, huh? All right, financing when selling. Traditional financing. You'll notice there's some on here that are like, that we're in the other one that are not out when you sell because you're not really using those. Although it's possible, I guess someone could come in and do you know, private loan or whatever it is, yeah. So traditional financing when selling, uh, cash, it looks like cash to you, that's what my cash note is. So if someone comes in with a loan, it doesn't matter if they got a traditional loan, it, the, the uh, title company is gonna give you a check, it's gonna look like cash. Uh, owner-occupant, non-owner-occupant loans, the buyers and or family and or partners, hard and private money, those coming in, And then all the different creative financing things, depending on how you're exiting, if you're doing like a more entrepreneurial approach where you're out there finding lease option properties and then you're turning around, you're offering the property on a lease option to a tenant buyer, that's sort of like sandwich lease optioning. So this could be an exit strategy for you is using kind of like the rent to own and others lease option exit. But all the owner financing, wrap financing, loan assumption, rent to own, agreement for deed and subject to, those are other ways to exit the property. Okay. Channels when selling, you can hold it forever so you don't ever sell it at all. You can sell through others, for example, multiple listing service, real estate brokers, or wholesalers. If you want to be the person that provides the deal to the wholesaler, you can do that. Uh, for sale by owner, where you do the marketing yourself, you either actively marketing, it, put it on Zillow, put it on the Craigslist, put the sign in the yard, go door to door. You could be a hidden for sale by owner where you don't even know that your property is for sale. Someone comes to you and they want to buy it. You have an unsolicited offer. You could be out networking and someone says to you, I really need a property in XYZ neighborhood. You're like, I happen to own a property there. Are you interested in selling it to me? Are you interested in buying it from me? Sure am. You could offer it at rent to own. You could do lease options, exits to people. You can offer rent to own properties. You could decide to do that auction strategy. Like when we did that option auction, you get the option on the property and then you auction it off to someone else. If you're getting rid of your real estate investment trust, you can go to a stockbroker, get rid of it that way. In some cases, when you're partnering with other people, your partner's gonna come in and they're gonna buy you out. They're going to say, um, you're like, I want to get out of the deal, or they're going to tell you you are getting out of the deal, and the partner is going to come in and buy you out in that way. Um, and this is ignoring losses like natural disasters, lawsuits, bankruptcy, foreclosure, divorce, right? Those are ways you could also lose your property. You could exit, but I'm not planning on those, although they do exist. Any questions on salad? Making up ground. All right, good. All right, so here are the six types of creative financing. I've been kind of Telling you all night that I'm going to get to these. I'm finally getting to them. Although I have sort of told you about them at some point. So I, I guess I probably should put this earlier. So here are the six. We've already talked about what they are. There's a slide for each. So I'm going to go through them. All right. Here's a warning. So how many people in here are interested in doing these creative financing types? So Owner financing, wrap financing, lease options, subject to just one person. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So if you're going to do these, this class is not enough information for you to do that. Okay any course you buy online is not enough information for you to do that. You absolutely 100% should do a consultation with an attorney in the market. You plan on doing the deals and make sure you have the correct paperwork, the correct way to structure the deal so that you don't get in trouble. Okay. There's a, this is like the, there's a slide on this coming up, but this is like the, you're given great power, which with, with it comes great responsibility. You could really screw somebody over with this and you could screw them over like unintentionally. You just structure it wrong and you don't realize it. And then, something happens to you and it's bad, okay? So you really, really wanna make sure, and you don't know what you don't know, right? Like everyone thinks, oh, I did the course, I paid the $1,000, I got the whole thing done. I mean, I got eight hours of training on how to do lease options. I know everything. Mm, maybe not, maybe, maybe not there, okay? So a strong always get the advice of and use an attorney work on, or uh, use an attorney on all creative transactions. Now, after you've done one or two of them, can you probably replicate what they did in most cases? Probably, right? I mean, I think that's probably true. Although there's nuance and differences in each deal, and an attorney may save you from making a mistake on one. If you think of it as the attorney is just an expense of getting this kind of creative transaction done, you could look at it as an acquisition cost. I think that's prudent to do. So these can be complex, highly nuanced transactions. If done incorrectly, you can get you in expensive trouble. The whatever it is, $1,000 or $2,000 you pay for an attorney to do it right could save you half a million dollars later. So that's a good return on investment, in my opinion. All right, All it has to be win-win or no deal. So with great power comes great responsibility. It's from one of the Spider-Man movies, I forget which, but I think that's an appropriate thing to say here. Yes, you probably could structure deals that are not win where you take advantage of people, especially people in sort of like rough situations where they've got things going on, where they're motivated to sell a property for whatever reason, they may not be thinking clearly. They may be um, in in a position where if you were unscrupulous, you could take advantage of them. And for all of you that are local, if I hear about you doing something unscrupulous, if I hear you took advantage of somebody, I will do everything in my power to ruin your business. I'll just tell you straight up, okay? You'll be removed from this group because I don't want someone looking up your name and saying, oh, so-and-so is part of that investor club. They must have learned how to do this crazy, stupid stuff from there. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that James taught it to them and all that stuff. So our community is small enough that- You will be removed from the group, but it will not end there. If I find out that you did something unscrupulous, I will go out of my way to say, do not do business with so-and-so. And and it will get ugly. So I'm just telling you up front, don't do it. Okay? You'll be banned from meetings. You'll be removed from a member. Um, I banned, I think it's 13 people at this point from the group, in case you're wondering. You should only do deals that are win-win for all involved. It should be win-win or no deal at all. Does anyone have any questions on that? This is your chance to ask me, you know, like, yeah, exactly. All right, no questions? Wow, I got really silent here. Like, you guys are like, holy crap. I mean, you gotta understand, you guys don't pay for these, right? So there's zero incentive for me to keep you around. you guys understand that, right? Like, I'm like, this is sort of like, you're coming here for free, if you're gonna do like bad stuff, I don't want you here. And I'm not losing any money by having you not be here. Right, you you get that. And in fact, you could hurt me. So there you go. All right, now that I've kind of gone down that dark hole, what are the benefits of financing? Why would would you want to consider uh, doing these types of deals? So um, little or no down payment required. You know, if you're trying to buy a property with a lease option, you know, it's not like you need to come up with 5% down or 20% down in order to do those types of deals usually. Although it's, it's completely negotiable. It's typically the same benefit as Nomad, except you don't need to move in. You know, with Nomad, we're able to buy a property with 0% down, 3.5% down, 5% down. So a lot of times you can acquire these creative financing deals with similar down payment sizes, except there's no requirement for you to move into the property and live there. So it's great in that way. A traditional down payment, usually 20%, 25%. You can do it with less in some circumstances with that 15% thing. Um, if you're doing more traditional, like non-owner occupant financing. Uh, it's possible to buy without bank qualifying. So you don't have to go to a bank and get qualified. You can buy with credit blemishes. If you recently had a bankruptcy or foreclosure or short sale, um, you, ha- you should probably be in the good financial position before you start making payments on someone else's loan or telling them that you can perform. Because you don't want to be in a situation where you file bankruptcy and you're heading there again. And you tell a seller, oh, I could take care over your $2,000 a month payment and I'm good for it. I don't think that's a good idea. So you can buy them with bankruptcy foreclosure, short sales, because a lot of times the seller is not going to say to you, "Hey, um, I want to pull your credit report. I want to do a full credit check on you. I want to see like your all your financials." A lot of times they're allowing you to buy properties without a lot of that background done, although they can require it. It's, it's a negotiation. You can buy without income qualification. So if you go to a bank, you get traditional financing. They're going to pull everything and do income qualification on you. With a lot of sellers, they're not. Uh, you should always disclose material facts. If you're unable to perform, you should not be buying these properties. You should be telling sellers that. You know, this is my situation. Um, And even if it means the deal is going to die, you should disclose that to them. Put them in touch with someone else who could do the deal or partner with someone else who can do the deal. You should always disclose that. Another advantage of doing creative financing, though, is you could buy an LLC or another entity up front. And a lot of times, if you're buying a property through the MLS with traditional financing, you're going to buy in your name. And then after that, you could, if you wanted to, talk to an attorney as to why or why not, you may wanna do this, but you could move it from your name to an LLC. Um, some people believe that that would trigger the due on sale clause, which gives the lender the right, they're not obligated to, but it gives them the right to actually foreclose on the property uh, or accelerate the loan technically. And then usually foreclosure is the next option. But that's a, that's a thing that could happen if you do it. When you're doing it this way, provided the loan doesn't have an underlying due on sale or due on transfer clause, which most of them probably will, unless you do an owner financing. Um, But if you're actually doing it where you're wrapping a loan or you're buying subject to or doing something like that, you could buy an LLC, but it probably will still trigger that um, acceleration clause in the mortgage documents. Uh, One of the benefits of creative financing, it's amplified return on investments. So some would say improved, but it could be the other way. So if you're putting less into the deal, but you're still getting the same appreciation dollar amount benefit, or the same debt pay down benefit or the same you know, depreciation benefit, then your returns are amplified because you have less in the deal. Um, and you could walk away. You know, if, if things really, really got ugly, you could walk away from properties and do stuff. So talk, see my warning, uh, the dangers and risks of real estate investing class. Well, if you're doing a lease option, you don't have to exercise your option. You could walk away in that case. Okay? I guess more continued benefits, self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k, in a lot of cases for doing those types of loans, you need to put down 30%, 35% in order to get those loans done, sometimes even more. So if you're buying a property and uh, you're doing it outside the MLS, you're doing creative financing, you can acquire properties with these self-directed products uh, without having to put 30 or 35% down, which is a huge benefit. Uh, you can do partnerships without a credit partner. Remember the three roles are credit partners, so the three roles are partnerships. There's the deal maker, there's the credit partner who does the loans, then the cash partner. So you don't need the credit partner anymore. If you're coming in and you're taking over uh, a loan or you're doing lease option, or you're doing owner financing, you don't need that person anymore. Uh, Could allow you to buy a property while waiting to qualify for more traditional purchase. So if you're in a situation where you had a bankruptcy and it's about to go away in a year, you know, kind of roll off your credit report and you're gonna go buy a house then, well, this could be a way to jumpstart that. You could buy a property before that technically rolls off. You're fully recovered financially, but it's still on your record. Or maybe you need to increase your income for another year, or maybe you've got great income now, but it, you need two years of tax returns to do something like that. Um, and most of the time when you do creative financing, you're using some type of creative financing exit. You're buying a property with a lease option, and then you're selling it on a lease option to a tenant buyer within a year or two or three or four down the road. And so by doing that, a lot of times you avoid some of these big capital expense hits that you'd experience if you had the property for any prolonged period of time. The like nature of the... Strategies you employ of getting in and getting out of a deal would eliminate some of those capital expense things on there. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So here are the downsides why you might not want to do these types of deals. It's a limited selection of properties. And I cannot overstate this enough. The number of deals you can buy creatively that you can buy subject to, that you can buy in a lease option, that you can buy with owner financing is very, 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 very small compared to the number of properties you have a selection of from the MLS. So what tends to happen is, you do all this marketing, you find deals where the seller is motivated enough to do a lease option or a subject to, or wrap financing or some other type of creative deal. A lot of times there's something a little bit wacky about the property. If it was a regular property that you had to come up with 20% or 25% down to buy, a lot of times you wouldn't buy that. The only reason it's attractive to you is because it's creative financing. And you're like, man, I'm not sure I even want this property. I think that happens a lot. And so you need to make a decision as to whether you're gonna spend a lot more on marketing and have a lot less deal flow, or if you're willing to take on kind of like, I don't know, instead of like an A-class property or an A-plus type property, maybe, and this is not like the like A-class property where it's like good neighborhood. It's like, I'm sort of re- just grading them as overall investment, right? It's not like an A investment. It's more like a C-minus. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of times it's that. Occasionally you'll come across something amazing. Like I bought my own personal residence that I lived in for many, many years subject to, and that was an awesome property. I lived there for, I don't know, 13 years, more than that maybe. So a long time, but it was exceptional. Wasn't like that was what was coming down the pipeline every day. Okay? So buying traditionally, when you go and you're like, hey, look, I'm going to Nomad. One of the great things about Nomad is this low down payment but you have the selection of the entire MLS. You get like wide choice. And in a market where you're not competing against 30 other offers, you have a good chance of buying a property, right? The one you want. So buying traditionally allows you to look at the best properties from the largest selection. Another way to think about this, this limited selection thing, I'm gonna pause on this for a second and harp on it because it's important because you may be getting uh, creative deals where the price to rent ratio is not ideal, right? It's not one that you would otherwise buy as a rental because Maybe the price is a little bit high for the amount of rent you could get. And you're thinking to yourself, man, this is not really a great rental. It's not something I would normally buy. Whereas in the MLS, you could choose that, right? You could decide, hey, look, I really want to optimize for income, or I want to optimize for appreciation, or I want to optimize for short-term rentals or whatever you're trying to do. And you can make that decision. And because you have a wide selection, you have a much greater chance of finding that. Okay. Uh, it's more labor intensive to buy this way. It's not like you just go to the MLS, you hire a real estate agent or you're a real estate agent yourself and you look through the MLS, you find a property, you go look at a handful, you go buy it. It's not how this works. You do a lot of effort. You go put out marketing, you go meet with sellers, you negotiate with sellers. A lot of them say no. A certain percentage of them say yes. A certain percentage of them fall out even when you're under contract. And then eventually you find one that you can buy. A lot of effort to do it. And a lot more money because a lot of times you're spending money on marketing in order to find the deals. But if you think about it, I would need to go and put you know, 1% of a, of a loan amount plus some appraisal costs and all these other things in order to be able to get a traditional loan. So maybe you're in it for five grand in some cases in order to do that. Could you then, ins- instead of putting five grand in order to get the loan, could you put five grand in marketing in order to find a deal? I think that's pretty reasonable. Uh, more labor intensive, I talked about that. Lower ROI for time invested. So you put time in, so your return on the time you invest is much lower. Um, this spreadsheet you see here, I did a whole class, so I'll probably do another one, it's coming up. Um, but this is me modeling how much money, how much time you need to put in, and every step of the process in order to buy off-market deals, and then where you make money on each one of the off-market deal, like the phases that you do that. And then at the end, it sums up all of the time you put in to finding the off-market deals for all of the steps, all of the money you put in for all the steps, all of the money you made for all of the steps, and then it calculates out what your kind of like dollar per hour was and your return on any money you had invested. And it shows you all those metrics. And you could do things like, if you're doing, you know, a certain percentage of these, I'm going to list, you know, certain ones I'm going to do lease options on, certain ones I'm going to flip. You can model all these different variations doing it. Um, and it's possible to structure them in ways that make them questionable. Don't do that. So don't go ahead and structure your deals such that the seller is going to end up with negative equity over a period of time where maybe they have a interest-only loan and you're amortizing your loan to them. That would be bad. That would be another example where you'd be banned, okay? Uh, you are not your sellers. So you're thinking to yourself, oh, James, why would somebody deed me their property and keep the loan in place? Or why would someone offer me a lease option? Or why would someone sell a property at a discount? Why don't they just do the fix up themselves and sell it get retail? Remember, you're not the seller, okay? I, 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 would, I wear Crocs with socks. <laughs> you know, poor choice, you guys probably wouldn't do it, but I do, and I'm okay with it, right? So just because the seller would do something and you wouldn't do something, doesn't mean it's bad, okay? Whether or not you would do something is not a reflection on what others would do. Just realize that. All right, what would sellers, why would sellers do creative financing? To solve a problem they have. You know, if they have some type of issue where they need money, um, and they need to get out of the house, they're ready to do a deal. They can't afford the house anymore. They've lost their job. They used to be a two-income household. They got divorced. They can no longer afford the payments anymore. Maybe they just went out. Um, they stopped making two mortgage payments. Maybe they, um, you know, they, they met someone. Now they're in love. They want to move into one house. They have this other house. They can't afford two mortgage payments. So they just want to get out of the other one. And they're so in love, it doesn't matter. They're just like, look, just take over my mortgage payments. Uh, Negative emotions associated with the house. Like they lived in the house, they got a divorce, and every time they turn around, they see their ex-spouse and they can't deal with it anymore because it emotionally triggers them. So that would be another reason why they wouldn't do it. Or they lived in the house with their spouse and their spouse passed away, or they lived in the house with their mother and their mother passed away, or they grew up in the house and their parents lived there and both their parents passed away. There's all these emotional reasons why they may not want the house anymore. Uh, They need to access equity quickly and easily. You know, Maybe they want to go invest in Twitter before uh, Musk buys it or whatever they're doing, and they need all that money in order to do it. They're like, I don't care because I'm going I'm to triple my money in, uh, in uh, Twitter or Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever it is, and they want to take all their money and do that. There could be a reason for them to want to get out. They don't want to manage it or maintain it anymore. Too much work, too much effort. Maybe they own it free and clear, and they're doing their financial planning, and they're like, look, I need income in order to support me in retirement. This equity sitting here doesn't do me anything. I can either rent the property, which I don't want to do, or if you're willing to, I'll accept monthly payments on this property, and that would look like an income stream for me, and I'm okay with that. That would work. Uh, What would friends, families, or neighbors think? Their their ego is too, too significantly tied up in what other people think that they don't want to list their property and have nosy neighbors coming over and looking at their property. They would rather sell it to you and be done with it, and then you could deal with all that. To get their price, even if it means being flexible on terms. So there are some people that are like, I need $500,000. I told my brother-in-law that I was going to sell this thing for 500000 I know it's only worth four fifty, but I got to get five hundred because that's what I told him. You could structure a deal where you could overpay for a property. You have to get better terms, maybe a lower interest rate, in order to acquire the property that way. Or a big balloon at the end. Okay? Why wouldn't sellers do creative financing? It's not a good solution for them. A lot of sellers are gonna say, nope, this doesn't work for me, okay? It's not a good solution for them, that's fine. Fear, the tenant trashing the place, not paying, calling with repairs in the middle of the night. What would friends, family, neighbors think? Unrealistic expectations. You know, tomorrow I'm gonna get a cash offer for full price, you know, I'm just waiting for it. My home is nicer than all the other ones on the block. I'm gonna get top dollar, you know, the other house down the street, it doesn't have views like mine do. Because in the winter, when the trees aren't in, in full bloom, I can sort of see through the tree that big rocky mountain figure thing, and that's amazing. You know, I, that's, that's my amazing view for like three months of the year. And that's my, my house is worth $25,000 more. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, my agent is just not marketing it well enough, so I'll find another agent. I bought it for X, so if I were to sell, I would need to get X plus Y just some arbitrary math they've done in their head. I want 20% down or more, I want 20% or more down. So maybe they're like unrealistic in what you are offering in terms of down payment. I put 20% down when I bought it, so you need to give me 20% down. That's how it always works. They need to, or are willing to wait for more traditional loan or cash transactions. It's another reason why they wouldn't do creative finance. Any questions on those? Sweet. All right, so these are the different ones we just cover. We're gonna cover owner financing first. Owner financing, what is it? Seller acts like the bank. The property must be free and clear. They cannot have a mortgage on it for it to be owner financing. What if they have a loan on it? It's a different type of strategy. It's probably either subject to or wrap financing in that case. Um, you purchase the property, you and the seller agree on terms, the interest rate, the duration, the amount of the loan, the purchase price, if there are any payments on it, the balloon and the amortization. The note and deed of trust or mortgage in some markets for the benefit of the seller. So this is what secures the property, secures, it secures your loan with the property. So in case you do not make the payments, the lender, in this case, the owner can actually get the property back. You are the owner in this case. If you don't pay, the seller can foreclose. Now there are, I'm not gonna have time to cover this, but uh, there are some advanced strategies. I'll cover this when we do the creative financing things. Just remind me, or I hope I'll remind myself. Um, you could do things like substitution of collateral. It's an advanced strategy where you have the ability to move the loan itself to another property. So you don't have to technically pay off the loan when you sell the property. Very, very complicated, advanced topic we'll cover another time. Key characteristics of owner finance or sellers. Um, one third of all homes are owned free and clear, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, or they could pay, the, and additionally, or they could pay them off if they wanted you to do owner financing. So they may have a really low loan balance and they're like, yeah, I could pay off $50,000, it's not a big deal. Possible motivations, it's been for sale for a long period of time. The home is vacant. They're out of the area owners. Home is not being maintained. Those are kind of like the most common ones. They desire a hassle-free income stream maybe, or they desire a return on their equity in some cases. Here are the benefits to a seller who's doing owner financing. Gets sold immediately. They have peace of mind. There is a marketing advantage to offering owner financing. So you'll attract more buyers of a very specific type if you offer owner financing when you're selling a property. Uh, they can get income from their property. They can convert stagnant equity to income-producing equity. And it might be higher return than they get if they sold it and put it in bank or CDs, especially right now. And the changes it changes the tax characteristics of the transaction for the seller. They don't get one big lump sum. They can spread out the income over time. So it changes how it's treated from a cash, uh, tax standpoint. Uh, qualifications. So how do you know if you're qualified to do an owner financing loan? Well, you need to negotiate that with the seller because it varies. Some will want full credit income check like traditional bank qualification. Some will not. Some will want larger than 20% down payment. Some will consider with nothing down. It's all negotiable. Uh, owner financing return on investment. Since these can be lower down payments, they can often amplify the ROI, return on investment, since down payments is the denominator. So it can make positively cash flowing properties have better, higher ROI. It can have negatively cash flowing properties have worse, lower ROI, it amplifies it. Since these can have lower than market interest rates, they can often improve cash flow and debt pay down. And you do get appreciation and tax benefits by doing owner financing. You're the owner of the property. Subowner owner financing may have interest only loans and some with balloons, which can improve cash flow, but remove the benefit from debt pay down. So realize you could structure these lots of different ways. It's, it's like the wild, wild west. All right, so that's owner financing, wrap financing. The seller acts like the bank, but, There is financing already in place that will remain in place. So they have that underlying loan. Like remember the example we used that $50,000 loan, but you're buying it for $400,000. So they have to make part of their payment to the underlying financing. If they don't make that payment to the underlying financing, that lender can foreclose. That's problematic for you. The seller's new loan will wrap around the existing financing on the property. You purchase the property. You and the seller agree on terms, same as before. Um, Sometimes it's dictated by the underlying terms the, by the terms of the underlying loan, especially if that loan is really high. So, example, if you're buying a four hundred thousand dollar property and the underlying loan is three ninety, that's very different because now your terms need to very closely match that other one. Otherwise, the seller could go under, could go underwater and have negative equity. Okay. Um, there's a note in deed of trust for the benefit of the seller. If you're going to do creative financing, at least in Colorado, I can't say this is true for other states, but the, I think it's the Division of Securities, Colorado Division of Securities. They would prefer that you actually do RAP financing and not subject to. And the reason why is if you don't make your payments, they want the seller to be able to come back and foreclose and get the property back. Okay, so you should not do subject to in Colorado. That's why well. you should talk to an attorney. Um, you're the owner of the property, and if you don't pay, the seller can foreclose with RAP financing. That's why they want you to do it. Return on investment similar to owner financing, you do get appreciation and tax benefits. The terms are often but not always dictated by the underlying financing of wrap loans. Key characteristics of the wrap financing sellers. Now remember, one-third of all properties are free and clear. They do not have a mortgage on it. So what does that mean? Two-thirds do. So two-thirds of the people would be candidates for these types of uh, transactions. Possible motivations, it's been for sale for a long time. Home is vacant. At of area owners, home is not being maintained. Same as a uh, regular owner financing. It could be a possible solution for people in pre-foreclosure. Why is not owner financing a solution for people in pre-foreclosure? Trick question to see if you're awake. Why aren't, why is not owner financing a solution for people in pre-foreclosure? They don't own, they don't have a mortgage. That's right. See, you guys are awake. That's awesome. So these guys, if they're in pre-foreclosure, if their underlying loan is in foreclosure, this could be a solution. You come in. You agree to make up the loan, the underlying loan. You agree to pay them $100 a month for their equity. And you agree to make a payment that looks very similar to what their underlying loan is. Okay? Uh, Desire return on their captive equity. Uh, My attorney does not recommend you wrap FHA or VA loans. So go talk to your own attorney. But um, there's something about FHA and VA loans that the attorney suggests. Do not wrap those. Okay? So only conventional stuff. Um, you may want to deliberately not market to them if you're trying to do wraps. If you're st- strategically trying to market to do wraps, you probably shouldn't do this. Concerns of wrap financing, you need to be concerned about the underlying loan is being paid on time. We talked about that. You make payments in two parts, one to the original underlying loan and one directly to the seller. So you could say, okay, with seller, I will go ahead and we'll, we'll do this deal. I'll make the payment directly to the uh, underlying loan. Now, they may say, hey, look, I've been paying my mortgage forever. I'm always on time. My bills, I would rather make that payment. So you guys got to negotiate that, but you're like, Hey, if if they're not good with money, they may take the money and not pay the underlying loan because they don't care anymore. So it's a negotiation. You could make a payment to a third party escrow service that will take your payment, make sure the underlying loan is being paid extra expense to do it that way. If the seller has great credit, their credit is still at risk. If you don't pay that loan. In some rare situations, you may need to be concerned that the loan you have with the seller would pay down faster than the loan they have. So do the amortization tables for both and see if they cross. You don't want to do that. Uh, the qualifications for you to get the seller to do with this, it varies with each seller. Some will want full credit and income check like traditional bank, some will not. Some will want larger than 20% down payment. Some don't care and will do it with nothing down. There's a wide range. It's all, negoti- all negotiated. All right, loan assumption. So you, with the permission of the lender, you go to the lender and you ask specifically for permission. You take over full responsibility for the loan on the property. You go to them, they transfer it to you. You are now responsible. You've talked to the lender and did this. It's different than subject two. Subject 2 we'll talk about that in a little bit. When you do loan assumption, it shows up on your credit report. It's like you went and got a loan. Uh, you purchase the property, you and the existing lender agree on the terms. It's often the same as the original loan, although it can be renegotiated. It's often a fee is required to assume the loan and often you must qualify to assume the loan. It's very rare now. I would say it's impossible now to find a loan that is non-qualifying assumable. It, maybe it's possible you find like a really rogue one, but I mean, that'd be like someone losing their kangaroo in Horsetooth Mountain Park and you stumbling upon it accidentally. It's just not there, right? You don't see kangaroos in Horsetooth Tooth. All right, no, indeed a trust for the benefit of the lender. So that's like to protect them. Uh, often associated with seller financing and second position for their equity as well. So you could get the seller to agree to take back a second mortgage for a small payment to kind of deal with their extra equity. Because a lot of times you're buying these properties and the property's gone up in value and the loan is maybe paid down some. So the seller sometimes has extra equity and you might need to pay them a little bit on their equity on the property. Uh, you're the owner. If you don't pay, the lender can foreclose. The seller is often completely out of the picture. In some really rare cases, the seller may still have loan recourse where if you don't pay, the lender could then go back to the seller as a secondary kind of like make this right sort of thing. So that's a possibility. Uh, loan assumptions similar to owner financing for return on investment. You do get appreciation and tax benefits. You're formally assuming the terms of the loan that you are assuming. So often like the ROI of traditional financing, ROI could improve if you finance all or part of the down payment with the seller for their equity with the lender's permission. Make sure you disclose that, that you're doing a second mortgage if you're doing it. Any questions on that? Key characteristics of loan assumption sellers, uh, they have a loan. Whoops. It often helps if the loan is assumable like FHA. Often requires that your owner occupy the property. So a lot of times they're not gonna do this for a non owner occupant unless it is a non-owner occupant to begin with, and they might um, make it much less attractive if you're looking to do this investment. So if it's not assumable, you need to try to convince the lender to allow you to assume it, even though it says it's not assumable, not assumable which is an uphill, bo- uphill battle saying it mildly. I've never seen them do that. It's possible you could go talk to a local lender and they're highly motivated to get this particular loan out of this person's name and have someone else take it over. But I don't know. It's, it's like, good luck. Good luck with that one. Possible motivations, same as before. Uh, May desire a return on their captive equity. They may want a premium for an exceptionally good loan. With all these really good loans now, someone may say, hey, look, my loan's worth something. You can't get a a 2% loan anymore. I know. And now they're 6%. So you're going to pay me a premium for this. And they have good reasons to say that, right? I mean, if you're doing that. Uh, And it may be worth it paying that. Uh, the qualifications to assume for non-qualifying assumable loans, there are no qualification standards. You qualify, you qualify assumable loans, it's up to the lender, typically traditional lending criteria. So what you would have to do in order to qualify for a brand new loan is probably what you're going to need to do in order to qualify for this one. If the loan continues to have recourse against the seller after the assumption, the seller should have input on the qualification standards and each seller is different. Right? If they're still on the hook, they should be able to say. Seller's equity, often, especially in appreciating markets, a seller will have equity above the loan assumption. So expect to either pay the seller for their equity as a down payment and or as monthly payments over time. This often becomes the second position for seller financing, like a second loan. Watch out for negative cash flow, although it might still be worth pursuing for the loan that's good enough. Yeah, 22 on through the mic. Pass that back. Thank you. What's an example of a non-qualifying assumable loan? They don't exist anymore, but there used to be loans where you didn't have to qualify. Someone could come in and just start making payments on that and say, I'm assuming it. And the bank used to be able to just say, I guess okay, because they have no say in it. That's what a non-qualifying assumable loan used to be, but they don't exist anymore. It's really hard to find them. You know, unless you create a loan, like a, a private loan to somebody and it doesn't say like what the terms are for whether you can assume it or not, or you put in there that it's not qualifying. You know, you could do like a private loan or that happens, but I don't see them anymore. I think the last one was like 1987. And if they're 30 year loans, I mean, that would have been 2017 or twenty two thousand seven 2007 when he would have saw the last one. Yeah. Um, uh, so I heard that there are some banks says, um, if the house has 40, 50% equity in there, and they can just take anyone to come in and assume the loan without taking their backgrounds, like credit score and stuff. It's that? I've not heard of that. that? Okay. So if you find one of those, definitely reach out to me and let me know. Okay. But I've not seen it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, types of loans to assume. So this is sort of like my internal checklist or at least a discussion. Um, I would prefer to take over fixed rate loans versus variable rate loans. Makes sense. Right? I would prefer to take over fully amortizing loans versus blo- loans that have balloons. Because a balloon is a, a balloon on a loan is you pay for 20 years and then whatever your balance is at the 20-year point or whatever the time period is, then you have to pay the full thing at that point in full. So if, the, if you still owe $200,000, they're looking for $200,000 at one time. That's what a balloon is. Fully amortizing loan gets paid off over the duration of loan. So over that 20-year, 30-year period, the whole thing gets paid off so you end up with zero at the end. That's the difference between fully amortizing versus balloons. I prefer uh, long amortizations over short term. You want a loan that's going to have a lower monthly payment. I heard that they're doing uh, loan mods at 40 years now, or they're talking about doing 40 year loan mods, which is crazy. Um, but longer you have to pay off that loan, the lower your monthly payment is. It's closer to approximately closer gets to, to a uh, interest only loan, which is going to be your lowest payment in most cases, unless you have a negative amortizing loan. Uh, high interest rates versus low interest rates, I would prefer low. Qualifying assumable versus non-qualifying. If you can take over a non-qualifying, that's better. Uh, And recourse versus non-recourse. If you cannot have to be responsible for the loan if something goes south, that's better than having to have responsibility. So that's what recourse is all about. All right, the rent-to-own family. That's rent-to-own, lease-to-own, lease option, lease purchase. So what is it? You agree to rent the property from the seller, and you have the right to buy the property at some point in the future. That's what that's all about. So you and the seller agree on terms, the rent, the duration, who handles maintenance, how that's all done. Often the purchase price and the terms of the purchase are also covered as well. And then often an upfront fee is expected to do a rent to own or lease option or lease purchase. Uh, microphone. I'm gonna cover a little bit about some of the nuances between lease option and lease purchase. But rent to own is sort of the generic term that's sort of an umbrella that, that covers the idea of renting the property, then owning it at some point in the future. But there is a subtle distinction in my mind between a lease option and a lease purchase, and I have a whole slide on it coming up, but good question. Um, Often the seller has existing financing and that stays in place just like it would if you were a traditional rental. As the tenant buyer, you do not own the property. So if you're the tenant renting the property and you have the rights to buy it, you do not own the property. And that has implications in a couple of ways. Variations include master lease, where you're leasing a property and then you intend to lease it to someone else and master lease options where you have a lease, you intend to lease it to someone else and you have the option to buy. Maybe they do too. Maybe you've offered a master lease, you have a master lease option and then you offer someone else lease options as well. And you'd wanna spread an air of some sort. So differences, rent to own or lease to own, it's a generic way of describing you're renting the property with the ability to own it. Could be either lease option or lease purchase. A lease option is a lease agreement with an option agreement to be able to buy the property. A lease purchase is a lease agreement with a purchase contract to be able to buy the property. Further complicated when attorneys write it as an option and then include a contract that goes into effect once the option is exercised. So depending on who you have for your paperwork, they may say, this is a lease option. You don't have to do it. But when you do exercise your option, here's the contract we've already got written up with all the terms. So further gets a little bit confused and muddy, but I think of those as slightly different ways to say similar things, okay? So lease option versus lease purchase, you're leasing the property, you have the option to purchase the property at some point in the future, you do not have to buy. There's usually an option fee in order to do this, that you pay. A lease purchase, you lease a property, you have a contract to purchase the property at some point in the future. The implication is that you are obligated to buy the property unless there's ways out in the contract and there's earnest money instead of an option fee, okay? Those are sort of the differences between the two. Any questions on that? That get your, think? okay. Did you have a question? Just itching. Sandwich lease options. You acquire the property on a lease option, often used generically, and it could be a lease option, lease purchase, or even super stretching it, it could be subject to. You immediately offer the property on a lease option to your exit, whoever's gonna do it from you, usually for a higher price, usually for a higher rent, usually with a lar- larger down payment than you gave, usually with more favorable terms to you. And we'll cover this a lot more when we do creative deal analysis and structuring in a future class, okay? Uh, Rent-to-own return on investment. It's different than what we've been talking about so far. Depending on how you structure it, you might get appreciation, depends on how you write it, because you don't own it, right? So you don't automatically get it. You might get debt pay down, depends on how you structure it, but not likely as a default. And you might get some cash flow. Depends on whether you have negative cash flow on the deal yourself and you will probably not get tax benefits because you do not own the property, okay? That's for rent to own. All the lease option, lease purchase type stuff. That's usually how it is. Money requirements. Each seller is a little bit different. Some may ask for 20% down. Some may ask you for a security deposit as if you were renting. Some may ask you for above, below, or at market rent. Rent in many cases is somewhat flexible. By the way, I have a, a funny story to tell you even though I know we're really close on time. So my wife's at the climbing wall the other night, and uh, there's a another group of people on the on the ground that are discussing. Uh, the lady is going to be. Oh, it's not someone in this room. That'd be really embarrassing. Um, the lady, though, is discussing that she is going to move into like the ADU, the additional dwelling unit at the back of her property, and uh, rent out the front of the property. And so they're discussing what they're going to charge for rent, and the woman is insisting that she charge what her mortgage payment is, which is just random because it doesn't really matter what your mortgage payment is. It could be higher than what fair market rent is. It could be lower than what fair market rent is. But it goes to show you that the general public just says, I want to get what my mortgage payment is so that I don't have a mortgage on the property. And that's my kind of like price. So kind of interesting, right? Uh, Where was I? Rent, in many cases, somewhat flexible. Some may ask you for a payment that you'd be making with a traditional loan, right? So they may like do the math and say, you know, this is what I'd like to get. If you can't afford that payment, you're really saying, I can't afford that home, right? If you're saying that doesn't work, I can't afford that. You're saying, I can't afford this home. And we often say this to a tenant buyer when we're putting them in a property. If you can't afford what the payment's going to be on the property, you can't afford this home. You're not going to be able to afford what the payment's going to be if you go to the bank and get a loan on it then how are you ever gonna go to the bank and get a loan on it and cash me out? Don't put people in properties when they can't afford the property. What happens if you don't buy? What happens to your down payment? These are questions to negotiate. What happens to your down payment? What happens to your monthly payments? What happens to rent credits if you've got those? What happens to any repairs you've done? What happens to any equity built up from paying down the loan? And does it matter if you did a lease option versus a lease purchase? Yes, it does, in my opinion. All right, so advanced strategy for purchase price. Um, so one of the challenges a lot of times when you structure these lease options is you say to, a tenant, uh, you say to the seller, hey, uh, I'll give you $300,000 for your property. But when you pay down the loan, you don't get the benefit of that loan pay down because when they go and they, you close out the transaction, they're getting the difference. So one way to solve that is you say, okay, Mr. Seller, we agree that you know, I'm going to buy it from you for about $300,000 and that you're going to walk away with 10 grand. So let's go ahead and write this up, such that when, we, when, you buy it, when I buy it from you, you get 10 grand. So it's $10,000 over the then current loan balance. Make sense? So as the loan gets paid down, you're getting the benefits, you're the one making that payment. So typically in a purchase price, for example, 300,000, the advanced strategy is to have a fixed profit for the seller. In st- example, $10,000 above current loan b- balance at time of closing. How much different is this? Well, debt pay down, Um, is significant amount each month increases as loan ages. The amount each month is higher, the lower the interest rate is. So depending on the year, what year it is in the loan, it could be $4,500 per year with a 4.5% loan on a $300,000 home. If you hold it for three years during your lease option, that's $13,500. That's pretty significant. All right. (laughs) I got two more to cover plus a little more. So uh, contract for deed, what is this? The seller acts like the bank for a car loan sort of like thing, right? Like that's the way to think about it. You do not get title for the property until you fulfill the terms of your agreement. Often there's financing already in place that will remain in place. You and the seller agree on terms. The seller remains the owner until you've completed the terms of your agreement. And if you don't pay the seller, the seller can evict you. You might be used when you're offering to owner finance a property for a buyer. So you might offer this to someone else. Contract for deed return on investment It's different. Depending on how you structure it, you might get appreciation. You might get debt pay down. You might get some cash flow. You probably will not get tax benefits if you're the person acquiring the property using this strategy. Subject two. Remember, in sell- subject two, the seller deeds you the property without explicit permission from the lender. Many believe, as I do, that the best practice is to disclose to the seller that there was a transfer of title. You should put them on notice. The loan remains in the name of the seller. The loan will not appear on your credit report because it's not in your name. It's different than Loan Assumption. It may be an additional note to the seller for some or all of their equity. Your return on investment, similar to owner financing wraps and Loan Assumption, since these can be lower down payments, also amplifies that ROI as we've discussed before. All right, cover a couple last ones. Traditional buy and hold. So this is like, we've covered like all the creative financing ones. Now I'm gonna cover some of those other ones kind of quickly and I think most of them are one slide. So it should be go pretty quickly? Traditional buy and hold, you got traditional financing, and a lot of times you're renting the property. You possibly sell at some point in the future, or you keep it forever. It's often limited to 10 30-year fixed-rate finance properties for non-commercial. So you're limited in how many you can do with this. So in order for you to scale, it's much harder for you to do this. Uh, you could do it with partners. You can rent to long-term tenants or short-term tenants, like a vacation rental or something like that. So those are the things you could do, whether whichever way you want to do it. No, uh, Nomad, we talked about this, it's like traditional buy and hold, except you owner-occupy the property. For it to be Nomad, you gotta move in. You get owner-occupant financing, lower down payment, better interest rate that you can get for a non-owner-occupant, you gotta move into the property, at least for the first year. That's what your lender requirements say when you sign to get your loan. This is where I'm getting this number from. So when you sit down and you sign for your owner-occupant loan, you sign something that says, I agree to live in my property for a year, okay? Uh, you get much better owner-occupant financing. You can get more than 10 traditional loans since you're always buying a primary residence. So it can go beyond 10 if you, if you need to. House hacking, you rent out part of the property, duplex, triplex, or fourplex, or bedrooms, or the garage, or you rent an RV spot or something like that. That's what the house hacking is all about. Fix it flips, you find a property you can add value to, often use cash, harder private money, partners for funding. You can do live-in flips with owner-occupant financing, so you can go buy a property. And there's even special loan programs. Like there's a conventional, do you remember what's called conventional home ready? Or so it's like a rehab loan that's conventional. Is it home ready? Is that, there's some brand name for it. Just go ask your lender what the, uh, the fix up loan is for conventional um, or the FHA version is 203K. There's an FHA 203K loan where you put 3.5% down um, and you can you buy the property. Plus they will loan you um, the money to do the fix up on the property. You can't do it yourself. You have to hire contractors but they'll loan you like 96.5% of that too. So you put 3.5% down to that. So it's a pretty interesting program if you're going to do it. Uh, so that's live in flips, owner-occupant financing. You could do a two-year slow flips for those trying not to pay capital gains, although the math with reasonable assumptions suggests waiting two years is letting the tail, the tail weigh the tax tail wave, wag the dog or something like that. The idea being that if you're going to do that strategy and you're getting a big enough discount, you don't need to wait the two years. Just pay the taxes and do it. More- You'll make more money, a lot more money. Okay. The one with an extra R. It's similar to fix and flips. You got to find those properties that you could add value to. Um, the acronym is buy, rehab, rent, refi, and the last R is repeat. You must get significant discounts or find an alternative way to add value. Uh, the cost of financing can significantly eat into your equity as you do this. Because a lot of times you're using some type of hard money loan up front to do it, um, and then usually the refinance loan is not cheap. It's it's not a it's not usually a, a really low-cost loan program to get, in, to, get to the uh, cash-out refinance. Or sometimes I guess it's not a cash-out refinance. It could just be like a rate and term, depending on how you finance it. Uh, rates on financing often get worse than rates for purchase. So you're like, your long-term loan interest rate is often a penalty than if you just bought it for cash or bought it with a traditional loan to start with. So realize you're trading some of these things. And a lot of times you leave some money in the deal. Wholesaling, you find a deal, you control a deal, you sell your rights to the deal. Often selling your rights in the contract. How does this compare to real estate brokerage? I think I covered that already, didn't I? Okay, let's skip it. Wholesaling, selling wholesale properties, but closer to retail prices to retail, a lot of times owner-occupant buyers. So it's like wholesaling, except mom and dad are gonna move in. Not your mom and dad, but some mom and dad with a family is gonna move in. right? They're gonna do that instead of it to an investor. That option auction, we talked about that too. You find a property, you get an option on it you market the property like crazy for a bid sale over a single weekend. You sell the property to the highest bidder using a round robin strategy. Um, and then you make the difference between what you sell it for using your round robin thing and what you have it under contract for with your option. Short sales and foreclosures. We talked about what are short sales. We talked about foreclosures. Anyone not know after this point? Because I think I covered it twice, right? Okay, good. So we do those. Usually foreclosures are the auctions, either the county or the MLS after they've Gone back to the bank, and short sales are usually from the MLS or for sale by owners. Real estate investment trusts—they're uh, basically that fund where people get together and they're buying big buildings, and you can become a a cash investor in those. You buy them from your stockbroker. It's usually an all cash investment. You're not usually able to finance those that I'm aware of, um, and they're usually passive. Tax liens and deeds—it's county dependent. They they vary, like what the interest rate you pay. Some you bid down the interest rate. Some you're you're getting a fixed interest rate. Some you have to wait. You have to wait a certain amount of time before you can foreclose. Some you can do stuff earlier. I mean, there's all sorts of variations. Every county is a little bit different. Uh, you pay back property tax to take ownership in rare cases. A little side note, a little fact. This was the first real estate investing book I ever wrote. It was on tax liens and tax deeds. Kind of thing. I was doing, I was buying some of those. I was like, hey, I bet you people would like to know how I'm doing these. Um, and in some really rare cases, they don't actually pay off They're lean and you could take ownership of the property uh, just for the amount you paid in taxes, plus some foreclosure filing fee type stuff. So it's sort of like the uh, Grand Slam random home run that you occasionally get, really rare, but it's a, a way to boost your return and sometimes get a property. Not like that, no. Partnership syndication, you find deals in all the ways that we've discussed. You partner with others to assist with roles you're unable or unwilling to fulfill. Remember there's the syndicator or the deal maker. Or the manager of the deal, there's a loan partner and then a money partner. You can have someone do one or more of those roles that you're not willing to do if you're kind of putting together partnerships or syndication. Or you could be one of the other roles if you want to get involved. You could be the money partner or the loan partner to do that. Um. Okay, I got two slides left. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. Okay, so non-creative financing type stuff. So this is like the non-creative ones that we covered. Like uh, we're not talking about owner financing, those types of things. So traditional buy and hold, including short-term rentals, that's the that's where you typically do these more like traditional financing type things. Going to bank and get a loan. Nomad, you typically go to bank, get a loan. House hacking, you typically go to bank, get a loan. Fixing flips, a lot of times you're gonna go get like some type of hard money loan or some type of uh, you know, bank product to do that, including live-in flips, two-year slow flips and partnership flips. For doing Burr and Burr, you're probably gonna do more traditional financing. And then syndications and partnerships, you're gonna do this. So these are like the non-creative financing type things. And then here are the miscellaneous ones where you're not really getting bank financing. Wholesaling, you're not really getting financing at all. In some cases, maybe you're getting, you know, the dough for a day or transaction funding if you have to close in order to get your deal sold. And then if you're doing real estate brokerage, what's great about it is there's no financing, right? You go you get a seller to agree to let you sell their property. There's no financing you need. You you know, a really weird, twisted way, and it's not 100% correct, so don't like say, James told me it's this. It's technically not, but... But one way to think about real estate brokerage is you have an option on a property. You've got a seller to say, hey, look, you know, you have an option to help me sell this property and I'm going to pay you a fee if you could find a buyer who's willing to pay this number. Right? Isn't that sort of what it is? So, I don't know. Real estate brokerage is a pretty interesting way to do it. Um, And you only have to do half the thing if you're doing that, if you're wholesaling. You can either find the buyer or find the seller and you still get paid. Uh, wholesaling, you don't need any specific financing to do that. Option auction, you don't need to get a loan or do anything for that one. Uh, If you're buying at auctions, those are, if you're auctioning off a property that you own, you don't need any financing to do that. But if you're going to go buy at an auction, it's usually cash. And the tax leads, tax deeds, sales, you're usually paying cash in order to get those. You're not really getting financing. And the REIT, you're not getting financing. All right, last slide, and I'll take questions. As if I haven't been taking questions all night. So which strategies might I consider if? And this is sort of to answer part of your question, Rob. But if I don't have a down payment, what strategies do you do if you don't have down payment, right? Like you start to yourself like, what could I do? Well, there's that real estate investing versus real estate entrepreneurship discussion we've sort of been hinting at or having. And that is when you're a real estate investor, you're taking money, you're deploying it, and you're expecting to get a return on that. That's real estate investing. Real estate entrepreneurship is like, you're going into the business of something related to real estate investing. You're either doing fix and flips, you're doing wholesaling, or you're being a real estate broker, but you're, you're like trying to earn an income by being in or around the real estate business, but you're not taking capital and deploying it necessarily in order to do that. So if you don't have a down payment, those are sort of like the two ways to look at it. You're probably not doing real estate investing because you don't have money to do it. Or if you are, you're doing some type of like really low down payment option, right? So, but in order to do this real estate entrepreneurship in the majority of cases, it's a sales and marketing skills type position where you have to get good at selling the seller in order to get a deal negotiated correctly. And then you have to go sell your tenant buyer in order to kind of get that out there. Or you got to go do, if you're doing wholesaling, you got to go find your sellers and your buyers. Or if you're doing, um, you know, like uh, fix and flip, uh, you, you got to go negotiate the deal and get the deal. And you got to manage contractors. And, you know, there's other stuff, the skills that are, they're that doing that. And then we talked about getting rich fast in real estate versus getting rich slow in real estate. And the like, they're both really slow in, in my opinion. I mean, you could like hit a home run accidentally and make you know a gazillion dollars on a deal, but it's really, really, really rare. In most cases, you're either doing the hustle, doing the work in order to do the work of real estate entrepreneurship and grinding it out to get money to then reinvest into like long-term wealth building and cash flow, or you're just starting there and you got a job and you're using that money to deploy. So it's really just kind of that like get rich slow. Um, and then even if you're doing nothing down deals, you're able to go find a, a seller who's willing to say, look, I'll let you buy the property and I don't require any down payment. It would be stupid. And, I, and I'm using that word very deliberately, even though I know it's offensive, but it would be stupid for you to do these without reserves, especially if you're going to go get a seller to agree to do something creative with you, right? So technically, can you do it with no down payment? Yes. Can you do it with no money? Uh, no, probably not, right? You need reserves in order to do these types of deals. So that's what I've discussed down payments adequate cash, adequate cash reserves for doing that. But what strategies might you do if you have a temporary inability to qualify for a loan. Like you had a bankruptcy or a short sale or foreclosure or the inability to document your income because you got a new job or new business or whatever it is. And you're like, look, I don't want to wait another two years. I'm doing amazing. And, you know, it hasn't rolled off my credit far enough yet. Maybe you go do something creative when you know you can afford it. You've got plenty of down payment. you got plenty of money. And this is just a solution for you to go acquire properties and do that. So I don't know, like those creative transactions are probably good ones to do for those where you can't get traditional stuff. Or maybe you bring in a partner of some sort. What if you need positive cash flow? What strategy should you do for that? So, like cash flow, you could say cash flow is like buying a property for a long term buy and hold, and you're getting a little bit each month. But couldn't you? Let me give you an example about this, and you tell me if this is cash flow to you. So you go out and you find a motivated seller, and you the motivated seller agrees to do a wrap deal with you, where they're going to wrap their underlying loan and they're going to allow you to make payments on it, and you put a tenant buyer in the property. Where you're going to get higher than what you're paying to them, so it's going to be maybe maybe it's even break even. The amount you're paying to the seller is exactly break even with what your tenant buyer is paying you, um, and maybe you got a little tiny bit of option fee from the tenant buyer, which kind of covers some of your costs to acquire the deal. So you really got nothing in the deal. You're break even cash flow on the deal, but three years later, the tenant buyer is going to actually go get a regular loan from a bank, and they're going to close out, and you're going to make twenty thousand dollars. So if you think about it as a black box. Maybe you put a little bit of money in, but that money kind of came back out really early on, and then three years later, at the end of the black box, there's twenty thousand dollars that pops out. Is that cash flow? I mean, it's twenty thousand dollars over three years, right? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a delayed cash flow, though, right? So that's sort of what I mean about the need for positive cash flow, option fees, and pops compared to monthly cash flow. Um, and what if you're concerned about the market might decline? Well. Lease options where you're leasing the property and you have the option to buy it. If the market crashes, you're just like, I choose not to exercise my option. Here's the property back, Mr. Seller. That's one. You do regular options. You can do real estate brokerage. I mean, real estate brokerage, you're in and out really quickly and you have no obligation to the properties. So you can do those. But for long-term wealth building, I think you sort of need to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm gonna hold out because you wanna be in the market for that long-term wealth building. So for like that part of it, I think you're, you've got that market risk. And if you've got a long enough time horizon, I don't think it matters because you could have a dip short term. But if you if you ask me to bet on the long term growth of the real estate market, historically over 100 years plus, it's three percent a year. And so, and there've been dips in there, but you give me a long enough time horizon, I'm like, you know, I feel pretty comfortable that it's going to be worth more at some point in the future. And if not, even if it's the same value and I paid off the loan, now it's free and clear and it's cash flowing. So that's how I think about that. And if you want to buy an LLCs, if you're really concerned, hyper concerned about you know, asset protection and liability and risk and stuff like that. Um, You know, there are ones you could buy where you don't have to, um, you know, move them to a LLC after you acquire them with traditional financing. You could buy subject to and buy in the LLC to begin with, or you could buy with a lease option and buy in an LLC to begin with. You could do owner financing and buy in the LLC to begin with. But those types of ones you can do where you're able to buy them in LLCs um, or with partners as well. All right, any questions? I'm over only uh, seven minutes over, but Rob, that's all on you. Any questions before
1: stuff? Before we go.
0: Wow, I like put you guys out of it. You're like, holy crap. Oh, you have questions? Yeah. This
1: is more like a comment here, James, yeah. which is in, so what you're showing us today is great, man. I, I, I love this stuff, right? Yeah. But what's happened in the last three years is that there are new players that have come into this market where we have all, everything that we do is, as We Buy Ugly Houses, guys, and Fix and Flippers and Burrs and Nomads and that. There's a property tech company that's come up back by Wall Street, which is doing a version of it. So they've taken all our best plays, and they've come into the market. So yeah. Open Door's an iBuyer. Homeward is a power buyer who will give you the cash up front. Divi is a uh, basically a rent-to-own company. Yeah. It's amazing. And So they've changed the, the, the field a little bit. But I just realized as you were going through it, there's actually tremendous opportunity to work in that space between – these guys and what we're doing now. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy, actually. I've just never thought about it until, until you showed me this. There's, there's tremendous opportunity. There's tremendous opportunity to wholesale to iBuyers because they're overpaying for everything anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think the way I think about this is we used to live in a, a land of bliss. It, it didn't
0: seem that way at the time, but we sort of had this really weird hidden monopoly on all these different options. And I think as Wall Street is coming to play and the, um, the internet and availability of information, you know, sites like Bigger Pockets that have sort of made this available to a much larger group of people, I think you see this increase of competition and you need to become niched and you need to become specialized and you need to serve people and find ways to add value, whatever that is. And I think there are, there are fewer opportunities than we used to have in some ways, and there are more in others because now we have more insight into the market where before it was, it was hard to find these deals and to let people know that you were around and doing stuff. And now it's easier to do that and, and harder at the same time. I mean, it's, it's like a mixed bag. So I think, I think there are some strategies that don't matter, like Nomad, as an example. If you're doing Nomad. Does it matter if there are iBuyers? Does it matter if there are things? I don't, I don't think so. I think that that's a hugely advantageous strategy to use. But long-term buy and hold. Um, I think you know, there's, there's enough opportunities in there to still do those. But doing the like fix and flip ones and doing the, the burst strategies, I, I think it's getting more challenging to find some of those opportunities, especially in heated markets like we've been. And I think as markets soften, you'll see opportunities to do those. But I also think that there are solutions for the um, you know, creative financing stuff coming. I don't think it's quite there yet because the market's still hot. But I, I do wonder a little bit if we're gonna see a, a percentage of those guys go to the iBuyers. If we're going to see them, hey, look, you know, I don't need to go sell to another investor. I could go onto this website. They'll give me an instant offer you know, subject to an inspection and, and some other things. And so I think you'll lose some of them that way, um, but not all of them because I think some of them, the price may be too low, especially if they're high loan to value and coming in and doing like a subject to or creative financing could be a solution for some of those there too. So oh, I don't know. Sell to- yeah, sell to the the buyers. I- sure, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a... A sub niche in some ways, right? Like that's that's you specializing in who your end user buyer is, um, but I, I think there's enough demand from mom and pop investors too. Where, yeah, iBuyer wants them, but but so does mom and pop investor, and they may, especially in aggregate, they may be able to eat as much as you can produce. Um, so, especially if you're not doing anything at scale, right? If you're if you're not going into 300 markets and trying to go crazy, iBuyer makes a lot of sense if you're trying to scale that way. If you're you're doing, you know, a couple deals a month or one or two deals a, a quarter. Then, you know, a mom and pop investor is plenty good for acquiring all this. I think in a lot of cases. All right. Any final questions? Was that helpful? Was that like a good sort of like overwhelm you class where you're like, holy crap, James, what, what was that all about? Is that good? All right. Well, I got nothing else for you. Thanks for coming, everybody. I will see you all next week. With home prices up. Mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Spokane is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today.
1: If you're a real estate agent,